Hi, I'm Stephen Hawking and I think the deactivist live streams are the best thing to happen since I died. Well, everyone, that's all the time we have for today. So, we'll <laughs> Randall, Randall, I thought there was like a rule. If you're going to call yourself a comedian, you actually have to be funny. I thought that was like a thing. Well, that's what Rita said on Sky News. Yeah, I just like, I'm Nobody's confused, laughing. man. I thought, I thought words had meaning. I just, maybe that's just me, though. Maybe that's just me. Look, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon now. <laughs> Piling in. <laughs> Uh, last time they called me gay because of my sweater, but I'm wearing it. Listen, you should wear that as a badge of pride, man. Someone calls you gay. You're like, good. I've got yeah. fashion sense. That's all that um, means. The algorithm will be certainly kinder to me, I think. That's right. That's right. What are you um? What are you smoking today? No, oh, look, I've just got a little one today. This is a Prodomo 10th anniversary champagne in the Purito Vitola, so quite small. Uh, but this one, actually, a very dear friend of mine, um, Damo in Sydney, has actually infused these with flavors of, for example, uh, vanilla, caramel, chocolate, and coffee. Uh, a mix of those, and I think some cream as well. So he, he literally kept them in a storage container for a number of months, not touching any of those flavors, but adjacent to coffee beans, chocolate, cream, etc. And slowly the, the aromas obviously mix inside that container and, and ultimately it infuses a little bit of that flavor into the cigar. So this is literally a, uh, a one of a kind. There's very few of these left in the world. He did about 100 of them uh, and there's very, very few of them left. And boy, are they a magnificent little cigar. What about an Easter show infused cigar where you just put it in a show bag for like three years? Oh. Look, if we lived if we lived in a free country, we could do all sorts of different <laughs> things. Um, but unfortunately, even just smoking cigars in public like this is kind of a little bit risque because, you know, there's all these advertising laws and blah, blah, blah. And if some dickhead out there wanted to try and pretend like I was advertising tobacco or something, that could give me a really hard time. Um, because, well, let's be honest, we're not a free country. So, you know, there's that. It's crazy that you can smoke this pretty freely though and if you want to smoke a flavored vape it's like oh no 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 oh, don't don't even get me started mate the i've done some videos on the whole the ban on nicotine in vaping it's, it's just insane it, it, there's a lot of government rules and regulations and legislation that kills people but there's not a lot of it that intends to kill people right but the ban on nicotine in vapes is literally designed to kill people. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's the intention of the legislators that voted for it, but there is no other possible outcome 
there is no other possible outcome. The only possible outcome is that people continue to use cigarettes that will actually kill them instead of vaping with nicotine, which is far less likely to kill them, according to uh, an enormous amount of research that has found that vaping is at least 95% safer than cigarettes. It is literally an example of government legislation whose only possible outcome is death. Is it just incompetence, though? Because, like, the argument is, well, one of the arguments is that they make so much money from tobacco tax. Sure, sure. Uh, but couldn't they just, you know, they? it's not like they have a lack of power to ta tax other substances that are in vapes, right? So what's the, is it just, they're just dumb? I, I honestly, having actually worked with some of these people, I genuinely think like, okay, so there's people out there that want to believe everything's a conspiracy. Right, you know, yeah, they want to believe that everyone's a member of the Freemasons and it's all Illuminati and there's like these shape-shifting lizard people that rule the world and blah, blah, blah. Okay, listen to me. Politicians, with all of their IQ combined, cannot organize a fuck in a brothel. You want me to believe that these people are running a global conspiracy? Okay, honestly, they couldn't, they, they couldn't organize compost in the arse end of their own lawnmower. Okay, they cannot organize anything. And you want me to believe they're running a global conspiracy. These are some of the most incompetent people that have ever, ever afflicted the face of this place that we call planet Earth. You are giving them far too much credit when you say that they're running a global fucking conspiracy. These okay, are some okay. of the dumbest right. well, uh, well, well. ever come across. All right, so if it's not a conspiracy, then who is the invisible man Joe Biden was shaking hands with? <laughs> that's called dementia. That's not that's not a conspiracy. <laughs> it's called dementia. Um, now, on, now, now, let me be clear. There are people who would like to believe that they were capable of running a conspiracy. Klaus Schwab, The Great Reset. That's not a conspiracy. It's real. It's out there. He's written a book with the name, you know, The Great yeah. Reset on it. People who say that's a conspiracy are possibly even dumber than our politicians, which is really <laughs> saying something. Um, so are there people that would like to believe that they were capable of a conspiracy? Yes, those people exist. Are they actually capable of it? No. Yeah. So we do have some questions. Mm. Uh, we do have some questions. And this one, I think, is a joke question, but honestly, I will, well, why did the Liberal Democrats lose? I voted for them. Yeah. Look, jo joke or otherwise, it's actually a fair question, right? Um, th there's a couple of layers to this. Number one, we didn't run as good a campaign as we could have and should have, and I include myself in that. I was the Liberal Democrats' lead Senate candidate in Tasmania. There are lessons for us to learn. There are things that we can do better and things that we need to do better. However, that's not the entire picture. I've been a political commentator now for 12 years, and... Um, one of the things that I have lamented over and over again in that time is what is it going to take to get Australians to stop being so lazy and disinterested and to actually get engaged in politics? And I've got to say, one of the silver linings of COVID was that I sat there thinking, man, this is it. People are getting engaged. People are stepping up. Now, that's not wrong, but I think I took a bit too much of a leap. And I went, therefore people are going to vote for parties I haven't voted for before. Well, one does not lead to the other. They're politically engaged. They're more angry and more active than ever before. Um, but they still buy into the idea of this false dichotomy, liberal versus labor the, labor, the football team version of politics that the media sells us. 
So we've got a lot more work to do. That's the bottom line, in my opinion. People say, oh, the election was stolen, this and that. No, I don't think it was. I, I, I do actually genuinely believe that the AEC, not the VEC, VEC, different story, Victorian Electoral Commission, different story. But the Australian Electoral Com uh, Commission, in my opinion, actually does a very good job and runs very good elections. And those who have been scrutineers and have actually spent time reading the scrutineers handbook, understanding what's happening and then seeing it play out in reality, have come back to me and said, oh, you know what? Up until now, I, I thought elections could be stolen. Now that I've seen it from the inside, I realize you were right. It's it's really, it's not that big of a deal. Um, like I said, VEC, different story, but I won't go there tonight. Um, so in my opinion, what we saw in the, in the federal election was an accurate representation of the will of the Australian people. And the problem is that we haven't yet reached enough, yeah, too comfortable, spot on. We haven't yet reached enough Australians and broken them out of this idea that if you just vote for the red, if the if the blue's in power, vote for the red. If the red's in power, vote for the blue. And like that's somehow going to fix something. We've got a lot of work to do. That's the lesson that I took away. Do you think it would be helpful for, so leading up to the election, we saw the debates with the prime minister and what, what did they call him? The alternative prime minister? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, why aren't, there, why aren't there minor parties in these debates? Ah, well, 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 well. Let me uh, let me dip into conspiracy land, shall we? Uh, having just poured water on all the conspiracy theories. <laughs> no, um, if you want the the prime minister or the opposition leader to come into your debates, you don't invite anybody else because they're the big boys in town. And the minute you say, hey, yeah, we're having all of the leaders of all of the you know, One Nation um, uh, uh, UAP, Liberal Democrats, etc., they go, well, I'm not showing up anymore. You're going to have a bunch mm -hmm. of the riffraff, a bunch of the nobodies? Well, I'm not coming. Why would I lower myself to their level? Mm -hmm. You want to have a debate that has the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, they're the only people you're getting. That's why what you see is actually segregated debates. They'll have the leader of the opposition and the prime minister up there, and then they'll run a separate session on a different night, and they'll have UAP, One Nation, Liberal Democrats, maybe other stuff like that, right? Uh, because the big boys in town are arrogant sons of bitches, and, and they know they can get away with that. Oh, you want me to show up to your debate? Well, it better be just me and the other guy, just red versus blue. Don't you dare imply to people that there's some other alternative. Yeah, I am. Um, I I am still pretty uh, disappointed. I guess with not the. I didn't think we'd win heaps of seats, but I thought we'd win yep. maybe a few. Yep, maybe a I, senate seat. I I allowed myself to believe that we were in the running for for you know probably between the six states, uh, the territories we really went in the running. I allowed myself to believe that that between all the freedom friendly parties, we should have picked up three, maybe four Senate seats, and we should have maybe had a chance of one, two, three, four lower house seats. Yeah, you know, I I genuinely allowed myself to believe that, and and I'm not going to shy away from that or try and pretend otherwise. I I believed that that was on, uh, and I believed it on the basis of some of the polls. I believed it on the basis of some of the people that I talked to. Of course, we're all to a certain degree inside our own bubbles. Uh, mm -hmm. And we tend to be, even on social media, we're being fed and we're being put in front of other people that broadly agree with us already. So there's a certain amount of unrepresentativeness there. But I'll tell you what really disappointed me and, and where I think we've just got so much work to do is the number of people, and I'm going to talk about UAP voters because that's where I know the numbers specifically, but honestly, Liberal Democrats voters were no better. 
right? I, I'm not I'm not singling out the UAP. I just know that number better than, than I know the others. You know, the UAP got X number of votes in Tasmania and the Liberal Democrats, myself as the, as the lead Senate candidate for the Liberal Democrats, I was number two on the UAP ticket. So you would think that I would get maybe 80% of all of the UAP votes would have put me at number two and maybe 20% oh. would have done their own thing. It was the other way around. 80% of UAP voters voted UAP and then voted for the Liberal Party, not the Liberal Democrats. Oh, they wow. didn't follow the how to vote card at all. Now the same, like I said, for, you know, full disclosure, the same was true of, of Liberal Democrats voters. We weren't much better. Uh, One Nation voters, the same, IMOP, etc. We didn't use the preferential voting system in the way that it was designed to be used. Now I did my best to try and 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 um, educate people. I released the videos that I released beforehand. They got watched by lots of people, but clearly it was not enough. We've got a multi-decade process on our hands, in my opinion, to actually educate Australian voters to know how to use their votes and to and to to not vote correctly in the sense of vote for the party that I say, but to vote correctly in the sense that you actually use the preferential voting system that we have intelligently to maximise the value of your vote. Do you think that uh, over the next four-ish years, um, I know that's, that's a lot can happen in four years. Um, sure can. Long time in politics. To, <laughs> I need to pick my words carefully and maybe you sure. should as well do you think with more people getting sad uh you know more people getting mm -hmm. sad or mm -hmm. close to mm -hmm. being sad do you think that's mm -hmm. going to wake people up or do you think people are just going to attribute that to something else okay so let me talk let, let me talk about it in terms that uh, that are generic enough that it shouldn't cause any trouble sure right now in the u.s i'm oh, sorry in the uk excuse me we're seeing about 16 percent excess mortality uh, I did a blog post on this recently, tofafield.net, shameless plug. Um, <laughs> so um, about 16% excess mortality. Now, not all of that is going to be as a result of people becoming excessively uh, sad. Um, there are other things that can come out of our excessive response to a, um, a certain thing that happened in 2000 and 2021. Um, you know, undiagnosed illnesses, cancers, diabetes, etc. All of that's contributing to that 16% excess. However, I think it is fair to say, given, you know, once you have the data, you then go back and say, well, what's the explanation for this data? And for the last six months, we've had an enormous number of anecdotes. Now, anecdotes are not in and of themselves super valuable, but in the context of data that then says, hey, there's a problem here, the anecdotes become quite important. And the anecdotes are from emergency services workers saying, hey, I'm not going to continue with a certain thing because I'm seeing you know, a lot of patients coming in that have had some very unfortunate reactions to a certain thing. Um, you know, we, we're seeing an enormous number of individuals coming forward saying, I reacted to that thing, or I know a loved one who reacted to that thing and in some cases passed away and in some cases are permanently disabled. I have a family member, a sister-in-law who is experiencing the effects of the thing personally, right? So on the one hand, you go, yeah, there's going to be so many people getting sad and so many people who know someone who's become very sad that it's going to blow up in their face. But let me put it in a different perspective. And this is what my blog post was about yesterday. Let's say it is 16%. That's what the numbers in the UK are indicating to us at this moment, as of, you know, as a couple of weeks lag. At this moment, we're looking at about a 16% increase in overall all-cause mortality. What does that look like for you and me? You know, I'm 40. 
most of my friends, you know, the bulk of my friends are around about my age. Obviously, I've got older, I've got younger. I was thinking about it the other day, how many people that I know personally, not that I know of, but people that I actually know, they're in my life in some capacity, how many of them actually die every year? And I figure if I averaged out the last 10 years of my life, it's probably around about three, probably about three people a year. So that's six people every two years, give or take, because every year fluctuates. It's not the same, right? So it could be two, it could be four, it could be five, it might be one. But six every two years with a 16% increase becomes seven every two years. Are you really going to notice that? With the fluctuations of real life anyway? I mean, obviously, you're going to notice it. You're going to feel it at a personal level. Every loss is tragic at a personal level. But are you going to sit there and go, wow, that's a lot? Because there was a seventh one in this two-year period. No, of course you're not. So there's a very real risk, actually, that despite the evidence, the data being crystal clear, the experience of the average person who's sitting there unaware isn't necessarily going to ring alarm bells. Now, in addition to the number of people passing away, of course, there's people having other effects. Now, that is actually probably where people are more likely to get woken up, is by seeing the other effects. Uh, but actually, in, in raw mortality data, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not hopeful. The people, the people that don't want to see it won't see it, even with a 16% increase. The people that want to see it will see it even if there wasn't an increase. It's just the nature of the human mind. We will see what we want to see. Hmm. So you, so on average, three people die every two years that are connected to you, unless your name is Hillary Clinton. Sixty-five <laughs> yes. per six months. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Um, but I, just touching on something that you said in the midst of that is that anecdotes aren't data, but I actually think the anecdotal evidence is somewhat stronger to changing people's minds because. Because it's emotional. Sure. Because it, yeah. it connects with you emotionally. Data doesn't. What I'm talking about, though, is from the point of view of someone like myself, where I try, and I'm not always successful, but most of the time I am, I try very hard to make sure that everything that I say publicly on my, any of my channels is actually the truth. Now, I have a policy. I never delete anything. If I get something wrong, I don't delete it. I edit it, and I put it in here there and say, hey, guys, I got this wrong. This is actually what the truth is, Right. So you can go back on my Facebook page and find the occasions where I got things wrong, maybe like twice, I don't know. Um, but I work very, very hard to not get things wrong. So what I find is when, when you're looking at anecdotes, it can be very easy to get caught up in the emotion and to go, well, this is an absolute tragedy that happened to this family, to this person. There must be a massive problem here. Well, I hate to break it to you, but sudden unexplained deaths of young, otherwise healthy people have always been a feature of the human experience, right? I'm sorry, it just is. People who do not deserve it pass away unexpectedly at a young age. That's always happened. And so when you get an anecdote of someone saying, well, I had a certain thing put into my arm and then this happened to me, it doesn't automatically, mm. it might be related but it doesn't automatically mean that it is. And if we jump too quickly and say, aha, see, this is proof, then other rational people go, well, but hang on, that sort of thing did used to happen. It's not until the data comes along and says, yes, it used to happen, but it's now happening four times as much. Now, when you connect that with the anecdote, you've got something powerful.
Mm. It's when the data and the anecdotes align. The data tells you that there's a problem. The anecdotes tell you what that problem might be, right? Individually, neither of them is particularly powerful. Together, they can tell a story. 100%. Um, moving from the dangerous waters to see uh, we, we're, we're still live. That's amazing. Yay! I can't believe it. <laughs> um, a somewhat cynical question. How is sure. Daniel Andrews going to win this coming election and why is it inevitable? <laughs> Not cynical at all. No, there's no cynicism there. All right, listen. I actually think that Daniel Andrews is very worried about the coming election. I think that he has seen something that the public have not yet seen that have that, that has got him seriously worried. Or if not him personally, it's got the Labor Party seriously worried and via them, he's under a lot of pressure. Now... If he believed that more lockdowns were going to be good for him politically or more mask mandates and what have you, then he would have jumped at the opportunity to reintroduce mask mandates. But he didn't. The health experts, for whatever that's worth, came along and said, hey, we need to reintroduce mask mandates. And he said, hey, guys, cool your jets, maybe not. We'll recommend it. That's as far as we'll go. Why the fuck would he do that? This is a guy that gets off on power. We've seen that for the last couple of years. He loves to be able to stand up and say, well, we're following the health advice. Why would he suddenly not follow the health advice and cop the abuse that came with that? And it did. He got a lot of flack from his own sycophants. The people that have been 100% in his corner for two and a half years were now criticizing him. Why would he wear that? He wouldn't unless there was an upside for him. I think that that is a very clear indication that he thinks there's a problem. And the problem for him is that the polls aren't looking as good when they do their own private polling, the real polling, not the politicized polling, mm -hmm. the real polling where they want to know what people really think. I don't think that's looking very good for him right now. We've had leaks to that effect. We haven't seen the polling, but we've had leaks where people have leaked the polling and um, they're claiming, they're not showing us what it said, but they're claiming that it doesn't look good for the government. I would say that Daniel Andrews' behavior tends to support that theory. Add to that, the Victoria Police have recently apologized to RV Yemeni for three unlawful arrests. Now, that's massive. Not only are they apologizing, right? It's egg on Daniel Andrews' face. And in addition, as I point out again on my blog, tofafield.net, shameless plug, that they are admitting to human rights abuse. Unlawful arrests of journalists, especially when they are covering anti-government protests and they are known to express anti-government sentiment, is a human rights breach. And Victoria Police have admitted to it. They've also paid compensation to a number of photographers who were caught up in all of the, the protests, pepper sprayed, etc. They've withdrawn the incitement charges against Monica Smith. And they tried to withdraw incitement charges against another chap um, who I, whose name I don't recall. I did write a blog His about him earlier today. <laughs> yes. His name is slightly difficult. Um, Tofafield.net. Um, I, I wrote a, a blog post about him. Sorry, it's, it's it's subliminal. No one's noticing, right, what I'm doing here. I don't, I <laughs> no, think I'm getting away with it. Yeah, all good. Um, so here we have a situation where Victoria Police have completely – oh, there we go. There we go. Um so down here somewhere. So that's about Monica Smith, the withdrawal of the charges on her. So go up to the next one. Go up. 
that one there. Have a read of Remember, Remember on the 26th of November on my blog. I talk about the chap whose charges just got withdrawn and he actually refused to allow them to be withdrawn. He actually refused to allow them to be withdrawn, which is hilarious. Um, so, and he said, no, you have to keep prosecuting me because I want to see this. I want to see this through. Um, so I think Daniel Andrews knows that he's in trouble. He's trying to get Victoria police to do what they're told. He always has, but they're not. They're backing off. They're backpedaling fast. And he's not in a position where he can make them keep the jackboot on our throats. I think the polls are telling him that there's a problem. Could it be that he's just doesn't want to risk a big change to Victorians' people's lives before the election? Maybe it's uh, forget about the last two years. Everything's normal and then he might but, turn it back on. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. He doesn't want headlines. He doesn't want Monica Smith in the headlines, right? He doesn't want this that other guy whose name I don't remember in the headlines. He doesn't want me in the headlines. He just wants it to be, oh, it's all in the past. It's behind us now. That's what he wants out of all of this. And that's mm. what we have to not give him, uh, which is why I'm banging on about Battleground Melbourne and trying to get people to watch that, etc. Remember, remember, don't mm. let him put it down the memory hole. Yeah. It's so it's it's almost surreal. Uh, you did a screening of Battlefield Melbourne. Uh, sorry, Battleground Melbourne. Battleground. <laughs> ground. <laughs> not field. Ground. <laughs> Get it right, Randy. <laughs> Battleground <laughs> Melbourne uh, at the uh, Friedman conference. And, um, you know, watching it, you're like, that happened? Yeah. Like that really that really happened? Nah. Yeah. I hadn't seen it for a little while before that showing. I mean, I, you know, I directed it. So obviously I, I know it extremely well. Um, but, you know, people sort of say, oh, it's really hard to watch. And, you know, I've tried to watch it a few times. I can't get through it. I'm like, yeah. I, I, I believe you. It's hard to watch. Yeah. So Helen Millen is the other guy. Thank you. Uh, Irelandish. Um, you know, and, and, and I say, look, it is hard to watch, but you know what? It was also really, really hard to make. And so I don't, I don't rewatch it except when I have to, except when it's, you know, I'm there at a showing or something like that. I, I, it brings it all back for me. And I look, I'll be honest. I was sitting at the back, um, watching, and from about 20, 25 minutes in, I just had tears in my eyes from there till the end. Like it's, it's so visceral for me and for everybody else who was there. I'm not the only one. I'm not, I'm not trying to claim I'm special. Like there were, there were hundreds and then there were thousands. And then ultimately there were tens of thousands of people who were there and they lived it. And, and watching or rewatching Battleground Melbourne is really difficult for, for each and every one of us. Um, I'm about to do a cinema tour kicking off on the 23rd of August, and I'm going to have to sit there and watch it. I don't know a couple of a couple of a couple of dozen times, uh, and that's going to be interesting. Um, but you know, I sat there with a tear in my eye. But Senator Malcolm Roberts was actually in the front row, and he hadn't seen it. That was his first, the first time he'd seen it. And uh, I was kind of watching a little bit, you know, being a little bit of a creepy, you know, watching him from from a distance. Um, and and he was wiping away tears as well at times. And um, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to kind of, I don't know, realize that for the pain that I went through and, and others, I mean, my editing team were amazing. They had to go through so much footage and just relive so much of their own trauma. Uh, I had a researcher who was incredible. She was phenomenal. She had to sit there, get this, having lived in Victoria, having lived through it, she had to sit there and watch hour upon hour of Daniel Andrews press conference to find specific quotes 
that I knew existed, but I didn't know when he'd said them and I needed them for the documentary. And she did it. She just sat there and, and, and like, can you imagine the mental and emotional trauma that she See, went through? In that relationship, you are the Daniel Andrews. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like an asshole. I and and honestly, like how she how she tolerated that, I do not know. I, I I caught up with her in Sydney. She's she's in Sydney now, and I caught up with her in Sydney, and she's okay. She's going all right. But I just I was like, man, I I I knew I was asking you a lot, but the more time passes, uh, I, I knew I was asking a lot from you, but the more time passes, the more I'm like, man, that was so unfair to ask her to sit through that and to do that. But that she did, and she that. found the amazing quotes, and and they're in the documentary, and that's part of what made it as good as it is. Because that had to be done because the narrative changes so quickly and people forget mm. and they conflate all these different issues into one thing. And it's yeah. like, hang on, no, 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 no. This is the timeline. The the number one piece of feedback that I get from Battleground Melbourne is I had forgotten X. And it'll be a different thing for each person, you know. I forgot, yeah, yeah, I find it hard to watch particularly the shrine footage of the day I cried for my state. So upsetting. You know, I get people saying, I forgot that they shut down the playgrounds. Yeah. You know, some people saying, I forgot about the Ring of Steel. I forgot that they just shut down those commission flats. No warning, no nothing. Mm. You know, like so much happened in that two-year period and so much of it was so surreal. And I think for a lot of us who lived it, forgetting was a coping mechanism. Yeah. You know, it's just just kind of living in the now and letting it go mm. and, and letting go of all the stuff that was in the past was kind of the coping mechanism. Um, and so I get it for a lot of people that f they've forgotten already. And this is why it's so important for people to, to um, actually watch it and rewatch it and get reminded. Um, I'm noticing that comment from Islandish. Uh, yeah, listen, listen, you ungrateful <laughs> little fuckface! I was in Randall's documentary. <laughs> I was in it. And because my face appeared, it was amazing. Whether you appreciate Randall's work or not, I was in it. Notice how I complimented I myself gonna... instead of defending Randall. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> See, all right, here's a question for you. So I don't know if you watch Stranger Things or, or anything. Actually, no. It was like this juggernaut of a show, but I never watched it. Okay. There's this scene in the new series where this metalhead character shreds master of puppets on top of a mountain while all these oh, monsters are coming yeah, okay. up in the upside down. I've heard something about the upside down or some, some shit like that. Yeah. Something like that. But anyway, yeah. moral of the story is now all these young Gen Zers are like, Hey, fellow Metallica fans. I'm a Metallica fan too. Now all the old school fans were like, Oh, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that you when, when the last two years happened and you're like, well, I was fighting for Liberty before uh, anything. I was have, there a little bit to, of that? I have to check myself because honestly, internally, I want to, I really do <laughs> honestly, but I have to remember that there were people in the 1980s and seventies and sixties long before I was born or woke up. I, I was a conservative until, you know, 12, 13 years ago. You know, yeah. and there were people who were fighting long before I began my journey to go, oh, hang on, actually, you know. So I, I have to kind of check my ego at the door a little bit and go, okay, so you've only just woken up in the last year. Nice to have you. Thanks for coming mm -hmm. on board. Thanks for joining. Because as much as I could beat my chest and talk about the last 12 years, and sometimes I do, I indulge my ego <laughs> a little bit from time to time. 
Um, the reality is there are other people that were fighting long before I was born and I have to defer to them and say, you know what? Well done. You, you spotted this long before I did. Um, it does get a little bit frustrating. So one, one episode that was particularly frustrating for me that I'll, I'll share with you is when we had the, um, the, the CFMEU members fire up, right? So on the Sunday, they were having their break room. They moved their break room to the, the tram tracks out the front to try and yeah. make a statement about the break rooms. By Monday, they were at the front of the CFMEU building and, and breaking the front door. And by Wednesday, we had the shooting at the shrine, right? There was this really compressed period of four days or particularly the three days, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it features heavily in, in Battleground Melbourne. And I remember, because I, I wasn't there on the, because it wasn't a planned protest. I was going to the planned protest through any of the groups that I was hooked in with. But this was just this whole other thing that just kind of happened. It just kind of came out of nowhere. So on the Monday, I was watching Rukshan's footage, the same as everybody else. Same on the Tuesday. And then the Wednesday, I went, you know what, I'm going in. But I remember seeing them starting to chant every day, every day. And I just thought, you guys have no idea what you're saying. This isn't every day on a picket line. Hmm. You know, this isn't every day standing around 44-gallon drums with fires on the inside, swapping yarns with your mates and, and sinking piss. This is toe-to-toe with the terror squad. Hmm. Now, I'd lived that. I'd experienced that already, but they hadn't yet. And that, of all of the eras, all of the periods, was the one time when I wanted to grab them by the scruff of the neck and go, wake the fuck up to yourselves. You need, like, if you're going to go to a protest and go toe-to-toe with the terror squad, you're going to need two weeks to recover from your injuries before you come back out to another one. There's a reason why we're doing a big protest every two weeks, you motherfuckers. Wake up. That was like, I just, uh, because when they started to make promises they couldn't keep every day, every day, they couldn't keep that promise. And the minute they stop, it's perceived as failure. Mm. They set themselves and because they were a proxy for the movement as a whole, even though they hadn't been a part of the movement, they hadn't, you know, now to be fair, some had, but the vast majority hadn't shown up to a single protest in the 18 months before. But all of a sudden, because they had all the cameras on them and all the attention, they were the proxy for the movement. I went, when you fail and you will, because you've set yourself up to fail, no one can do that. I can't do that. You certainly can't do that. When you fail, it's going to be perceived as a failure of the movement. And that's going to be a real problem. And three days later, my prediction came true. Mm. On the Thursday morning, they didn't show up. And I sat there and I, and, and there's a video on my Facebook page where I, I, so I'm talking tactics on the Wednesday. I'm like, guys, after the shooting and everything else, I'm like, guys, we need a change of tactics. We cannot keep going in, trying to do these big protests, going toe-to-toe with the anti-terror squad. The cost is too high right? People are getting hurt. And I mean, properly hurt. There are people that got shot with rubber bullets that have had multiple surgeries. They've got internal injuries that they will never fully recover from, right? This it's brutal. It's real. This isn't, this wasn't some bullshit reality TV show. These people were getting hurt. And on the Wednesday, it was like, okay, this is this, this little phase, this little spike of the CFMEU, they're about to bugger off. And in a week's time, they'll be crawling their way back to the work sites, begging for their jobs back. John Setka was actually right about 90% of them. Full credit to the 10%, full credit to them, right? But John, John Setka, when he called them little bitches and said they'll be crawling back for a job in a week's time, he was right about 90% of them. Hmm. Okay, brutal, but it's the truth. There were 18 months of history there where people like myself and so many other good people had risked our necks time and time again in a carefully tempoed, carefully measured cadence 
where we would go out every two weekends and dance with Victoria Police once again, right? Because that's what we knew we could sustain. And I wanted to grab them by the scruff of the neck. And I was at the shrine before the shootings happened. I was at the shrine and I was sitting there going, we have won today. We've achieved everything that we can possibly achieve today. We have negotiated and, and cornered the Victoria Police into a stalemate. Let's go home. Let's go home with no injuries. Let's go home where we can all come back tomorrow. This is amazing. Mm. And I got a megaphone at one point, but of course, they're not protesters. They weren't part of the movement. They had no fucking idea who I was. Who's this random, fat, middle-aged asshole who wants <laughs> to tell us what to do, right? And so I got the megaphone. I said, listen, let's go home. Guys, you don't understand what you've achieved today. Go home. And of course, they didn't mm. listen. So they stuck around. It ended up with the shooting and everything else. Now, the silver lining was that the nurses and the, the teachers came out the next day and staged their own protests and they rescued the movement. Because honestly, think about it. If nothing had happened for a week, mm. that was it. We were in a really perilous situation because the CFMEU members didn't have the balls that they thought they had. And when the going got tough, they all disappeared and they couldn't mm. maintain the tempo and they made promises they couldn't keep. That's the one moment in this whole movement that I've been like, I just wanted to grab these people by the scruff of the neck and go, shut the fuck up. And if you can't shut up, go home because you're actually doing more harm than good. One thing that you pointed out on the, on the weekend was the day after they did like a media piece on how much rubbish was left at the shrine and how they pissed on the shrine. But what you said was, uh, which I didn't pick up, stupid of me, but they picked up all the rubber bullets before they took any footage because yeah. what someone noticed on my discord was like, well, it wasn't hard to notice, but they had like a veteran standing on the shrine with a plastic bag cleaning up, but the plastic bag was empty. Yeah. <laughs> was like... So a couple of things. Firstly, horses, they've got big bladders. A lot of piss comes out of horses. I tell you, there was a lot more horse piss on that shrine than there was any human piss. Mm. Secondly, it's a bit rough to blame humans for peeing on you know wherever they're standing when they can't leave yeah right you've cornered them oh he's relieving his bladder on the shrine well, he's standing on the shrine and if he tries to leave he gets his head cracked in yeah right what, what do you think he's going to do with the rubbish okay this is absolute bullshit uh, i was there people were not discarding rubbish they were putting it in their pockets there were no bins in the humidity area people were putting it in their pockets but anything that was in someone's hand when the police moved in and started shooting, that got dropped mm. immediately. Human instinct, fight or flight, whatever's in you, that water bottle that's in your hand when there's a when there's a rubber bullet suddenly coming at your head, your hand, you don't care about that anymore, mm. right? That's the rubbish that was on the shrine. Now, in addition to that, there were a couple of hundred rubber bullets, but you won't see a single one of those in any of the photos. Mm. Yeah. Again, it's surreal. It's so surreal. It's I, the, the more time passes, the less I give a shit what people think of me and the more angry I am about what happened. Right? It's, it is such a blatant, shameless, careless violation of human rights. And every single person involved, like I'm not a vindictive human being by nature. I'm not. But the people involved in the decisions and the carrying out of those decisions should never be able to hold a position of public office again, ever. 
They should be stacking shelves at the supermarket. They should be out picking fruit in the middle of nowhere where no one recognizes their face. And they should be looking over their shoulders every time they walk down the street out of fear that someone might recognize them and realize who they are and what they're responsible for. It is utterly, absolutely shameful. The violations of human rights have been shameful, have been blatant, have been like, it's not even, it's not even like, I, I don't have language for it. So let me say it badly because I don't know how to say it well yet. You know, sometimes you can make a mistake and you go, oh, I didn't realize I'd gone that far. Right. But actually, you know what? I went too far. I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to whatever. No, it wasn't even that. It was blatant. They must have known at the time just how ridiculous it was to be lining up shoulder to shoulder with their compatriots, loaded to the hilt with body armor, stab proof vests, ballistic helmets, and, and weapons that have the potential to kill. Do not believe any propaganda that says rubber bullets can't kill. Studies have shown that approximately 3% of rubber bullets deployed on unarmed, unarmored crowds of people kill somebody. That's roughly one out of every 33. bigger death rate than other things going around, but continue. Sure. Yeah, correct. Correct, right? So the fact that no one was killed by the hundreds of rubber bullets that were fired is one of two things. Dumb luck. Or the police officers perhaps were deliberately firing at the ground or deliberately firing to miss. Now, if that's the case, that is, in some small measure, a saving grace for the officers involved, that they fired to miss instead of firing to hit. We know that some definitely fired to hit. We know that for a fact because people were hit. But even so, if you're lining up and you're pulling the trigger, even aiming at the ground or aiming at their feet, you must know. And the fact that you're aiming at their feet, you must know that what you're doing is wrong. And the more time passes, the more unforgivable I find it. Mm. Scott Morrison was up today or last night, well, the video came up today, uh, at his church saying, don't put your trust in the government and the UN. Put your trust. And I'm like, okay, I love the message, put your trust in God and not the government. But also you're in power for two years and told us Correct. to trust you and gave us no freedom. What's a, what are you talking okay. about? I, I am a, a believer. I am a Christian. Um, I'm very mindful of scriptures that tell us not to judge other people's faith, right? People, faith is, um, it is an individual thing between the individual and God. However, we are instructed in scripture that we can judge people by their fruits. A good tree does not bring forth bad fruit, mm. right? And I would, what I would say to Scott Morrison is look at your fruit when you were the prime minister. Look at what you did when you when the heat was on and you had to make judgment calls. Did you stand for what was right, stand up for human rights, for the basic principles of law, innocent until proven guilty? Yeah, you know, he wouldn't even stand for the rights of Australian citizens to return to Australia. Mm. What the fuck am I paying taxes for? If I can't even come back to my home country whose passport I hold and where I've paid taxes all my life in a moment of crisis, you cannot sit there and say, no, it's a crisis. We're locking you out. No, you motherfucker. A crisis is the reason why I need to be let in. <laughs> right? Oh, and he couldn't, yeah. even, he couldn't even bring himself to do that. So you will know them by their fruits. I, I don't think that um, Scott Morrison would want to be judged by his fruit. 
I don't think there was any fruit found in uh, on the floor in Ingadine, so <laughs> it's not in his diet. Um, yeah. What do you think of uh, the UK Ukraine Russia situation? If we can change gears, um, the number one mistake I see people making with Ukraine Russia is that they're looking for a good guy. Right. There's people on one side saying Ukraine is full of Western corruption and, you know, the Biden family and everything else and human trafficking, sex trade, etc. I agree. They're absolutely correct. But then they go one step further and say, therefore, Putin is the good guy. Yeah. No. Stop looking for a good guy. Other mm -hmm. people are like Putin is this oligarch wannabe tyrant dictator who wants to reassemble some fictional Russian empire. Yeah, I agree. He's a megalomaniac. He wants to be, he wants to be remembered as the new Tsar right, who, who put back together the Russian Empire. I agree. He's a terrible, horrible human being. But then they go one step further and say, therefore, Ukraine are the good guys. Ah, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't get with you on that, right? Mm. Um, now, lest I be accused of fence-sitting, let me be very, very clear. I hope Ukraine win, right? I hope Ukraine push Russia back out and enforce that border. For the simple fact that if Ukraine don't, then Latvia, Estonia, other former USSR countries are very much going to be on edge. Whether rightly or wrongly, we can debate, but the fact is they're going to be on edge and we're going to enter a new era where Europe once again enters this kind of Cold War state, right? So for purely pragmatic, practical reasons, I hope that Ukraine push Russia back out and reclaim those territories. Donbass, et cetera, that's above my pay grade. I don't know enough to be able to say whether the Donbass should be part of Russia, part of Ukraine, getting part of whatever. Um, I'm not going to commentate on that. But for purely pragmatic reasons, I hope that Ukraine win, not because they're the good guys, not because Volodymyr um, Zelensky is some hero, blah, blah, blah. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't actually care. Practically speaking, I don't want Russia to win this war. Yeah, and I mean, we can't turn back time, but... Uh... Bush did uh, did promise, hey, NATO's not going to move one inch east, and then, but we can't turn oh, back time. Oh, sure, but how far do you want to turn back time? I mean, I, I mean, are we going all the way back <laughs> to when to when um, Liechtenstein had an empire? You know, like True. like how far are we going here? Um, yeah. The reality is, uh, you know, to, to to put another side to that argument, Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons. Ukraine would be the number three nuclear power on Earth. After the U.S., actually, sorry, Russia first by number of warheads, Russia, U.S., and then it would have been Ukraine. They gave up every single one of those nuclear warheads in return for a security guarantee from NATO. Right? Right or wrong, that's what they did. Now they're trying to cash in that security guarantee, and NATO don't want to send people. They're sending some weapons, but they don't want to actually send people. They don't want to actually make good on the security guarantee. And I wouldn't blame older Ukrainians who are sitting there going, well, we should have kept our fucking nuclear weapons, shouldn't we? I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't blame them for holding that point of view. Yeah. 100%. Uh, so maybe it's a good time to inform people that the Liberal Democrats very soon are going to have to rebrand. Mm. Uh, do you do you have any uh, dogs in the fight in terms of what you want the party to be called? Or I couldn't care you know? less as, as long as it resonates. <laughs> the um, I know I, I don't have an agenda. I'm so so full disclosure. I'm actually on the committee that is that is contributing to that process, and will ultimately I, I'm one of the members of the committee 
um, that is going to then make a recommendation to the membership for the membership to vote on a new name, right? I do not have a specific name that I want. I don't. I am looking forward with interest to when we get to the stage in the process where we actually start doing some public random polling, where we're putting names in front of random members of the public, where we're paying a, a firm, a consultancy firm to do this for us. So there's absolutely no possibility of anyone gaming the system or trying to get a particular outcome. We just want to know what the public actually think and how they respond to different ideas. Um, you know, so many words are tainted. I see there's a you know, uh, informed dissent has said the new libertarians, uh, you know, the, the Randians. Uh, there's, there's a few different suggestions coming through in the comments. <laughs> Mm. Whoever gets the best name, I'm going to put it forward to the Lib Dems. Um, and from my point of view, the, one of the complications is a lot of the names that we could just easily pick are very, very tainted. We could call ourselves the Libertarian Party. That would be accurate, but it's very tainted by the perception of the Libertarian Party in the US. We yeah. could call ourselves um, the, the Classical Liberal Party, and that would be true. But the word liberal in Australia is already taken by our so-called conservative party, not, but so-called. And the word <laughs> liberal in the US has the opposite meaning. It actually means progressive. It's the opposite of conservative. Mm. So the Sony, you know, we could we could call ourselves the Democrats. That would be true. We, we do hold democratic principles. But the Democrats is a very tainted name in Australia. It has specific ideas and values and policies associated with it. So it, it, it's sort of navigating a little bit of a minefield of finding something that isn't already tainted, but yet accurately expresses the values and the aspirations of what we actually represent. That's a tricky process. And, and my only commitment, and I said this before they appointed me to it, I said, my only commitment is to run the process or, or to participate. So I'm not the one running it, but to participate in the running of the process um, as well as we possibly can to try it. Party McParty face. Listen, <laughs> I, you, I'm you can do worse. <laughs> you can do worse. <laughs> um, you know, but but we've got to come up with something better than the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats, in you know, if I'd been a member of the party when they adopted that name, I would have opposed the idea. Mm. Um, however, I wasn't. Water under the bridge. I am now a member of the party and I'm contributing to the argument around what the new name should be. Uh, I don't know what that is yet, but I, it needs to be something that resonates with people a lot better than what we've had. Yeah. Um, and the answer is no, they don't have to rebrand till after the state elections, I'm pretty okay, sure. So so let me tell you the moving parts because I can't, I can't answer that. I don't know. That's up to the Victorian state executive. Uh, so so the, the rebranding committee is a part of the federal executive. We will then come up with a new name. And if the party membership approves that name, then the federal executive will, the federal party will have to change the name because obviously they're bound by the, the party vote. The state, my understanding is that the state branches will then be obligated to change, but they can influence and, and select the timing of that change. Whether they should rebrand before the coming election or after the coming election is not my decision to make. My instinct for what it's worth, again, it's not my decision and, and no one should pay attention to my opinion, but my instinct is that there is some value in the, the Liberal Democratic name within Victoria because of um, David Limbrick and Tim Quilty, who were two absolute troopers. And David Limbrick, you know, who is recognised as a Liberal Democratic Party uh, MP was or is the de facto opposition leader. So I would be very sympathetic to members of the Victorian executive who may want to keep that name for the election. Now, if we come up with some amazing name, they may choose to rebrand. That's up to them. But I would certainly be sympathetic to arguments that they should keep that name at least for one more election.
The Danny's got to go party. <laughs> That'll get your votes. Um, I think uh, uh, speaking of Limbrick, maybe we should give a plug to the Friedman um, conference because I had a lot oh, of fun. How and good? How good is it smashing beers oh. with David Limbrick? Hey, He's hey. a normal person. Have you listened to your audio? No. You should listen out? to your audio. You should How listen to your audio that? card carefully. Oh Just no, saying. I have listened to my audio. I um I did. I found the secret message you left. You found the message? Okay. All right. No need to <laughs> no, say no more. Say no more. Okay. Um good. all right. Just checking. Hilarious. Just checking. Um no, the, the Friedman conference, like people say, why would you go to conferences? Like, what's in a conference? And it's like it's really hard to explain. You've kind of got to be there and then you get it. Yeah. Um, but I just found that the Friedman Conference, what was that, last weekend? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah, last weekend. It was just so good for my soul mm. to be back in a conference center with, with, with these amazing people, hearing these incredible speakers, the networking, the drinking till 2 o'clock in the morning, of course. Um, you mm. know, everything that sort of comes along with that is just so good for the soul. It is so much more than just oh, who's speaking? What are the what are the topics for the sessions? Blah blah blah. No, it's so much more than that. I had an absolutely fantastic time. Yeah, me too. I noticed that there were uh, ABC journalists there on the first day, but when they rocked up, they already had their notes pre-written. And I was like, what? <laughs> just going to drink coffee, go home, and then put out their preconceived notions. <sighs> No, but I, I had a blast. I think it was really good. Um, what can people do to uh, be prepared for the incoming stagflation slash hyperinflation slash end of the world slash what, what is your hopeful message okay. for individuals living in Australia? Get a shipping container, bury it partially underground, stockpile baked beans and ammunition. No, um, <laughs> no that's not my answer. That's not my answer. <laughs> I think most of my followers already do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably probably about half of mine. Listen, <laughs> the trusted get... science party. That's amazing. I think you'd actually get a lot of votes with that name. Let, let me let me get a little bit academic and then I'll bring it back to the real world. When we talk about an economic crisis, people focus on the money. What's happening with GDP? What's happening with inflation? What's happening with the value of our dollars? How fast, you know, the velocity of money, the availability of credit, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's only half the picture. Why do you pay money for something? Randall, you tell me. When you hand over money, why? Well, I would value whatever it is that you're giving me more than I value the money. In return for something. Yeah. And it's that side of the equation that actually matters because it's that side of the equation that you can eat or that keeps you warm or clothed or helps you to move around or keeps you sheltered, et cetera, et cetera. When the money side of the equation goes down the toilet, it doesn't mean that the other side of the equation has gone down the toilet, right? It just means that sometimes we have to get a bit more creative about how we pay for things. Now, Venezuela is a great living example of this. I had paid no attention whatsoever to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies until I went to Venezuela in 2015. And I discovered while I was there that everyone was using uh, Bitcoin. And I found out, Googling it later after I'd come home, that Venezuela had the highest per capita uptake of Bitcoin. Why? Because their money was in the toilet. 
right? The money side of every equation was in the toilet. That didn't mean people weren't growing food. It didn't mean people couldn't fix a leaping, a leaking tap, right? It didn't mean that all the things couldn't still be done. It's just the money side had gone down the toilet. So they found an alternative. And there were people who would run their businesses exclusively in Bitcoin. They wouldn't accept a client, a client unless the client was going to pay them in Bitcoin. They wouldn't bring on an employee unless the employee was going to accept their salary in Bitcoin. There were people in Venezuela who'd moved their entire lives across to Bitcoin. Now that's extreme, but their inflation was extreme, right? Their situation was extreme. So that was a real learning moment for me. We spent a week in Caracas, my wife and I, and it was just, it was amazing. It just completely revolutionized my, my sort of how I viewed the world. And the reality is what I think we need to be doing is number one, finding each other and building community. Community, building community is never a bad thing. Even if we're wrong and there is no economic meltdown, blah, 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 you're never going to find yourself sitting there going, well, damn, I wish I hadn't built that community. You know, I wish I hadn't met those people and made those yeah. friends. Yeah. Like you're never going to, you're never going to be sitting there saying that. Okay. So building community is always a good thing. Building community with people who are practical and ensuring that you yourself are also practical. You can do things in the real world that are worth something in our lives, regardless of what happens with money. That, for me, is the number one priority as we're facing the uncertainty of, of what may happen economically. Yeah. Well, look, I can press a red button. That's pretty practical. No, 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 one, else, no one else can do that. Um, well, thanks for chatting with us and smoking and... Uh, having a great time are you almost hey, an hour goes fast when i'm chatting with you mate yeah that's um that's because you did most of the chatting <laughs> it's because i like the sound of my own voice randall i thought you knew that yeah i think you, you probably have reverb on your end as well just so you can get all oh. of the benefits oh sorry the the, the sexy deep tones does that <laughs> uh, does that do something for you i'd say i'm and sorry but i'd be lying and are you um and are you are you hopeful for Australia's future or are you gonna uh, jump ship? Do you think? All right. So here's and if I'm you were gonna moment. jump ship, I'd, and if you were gonna jump ship, where would you go? Oh, how long That's have you got? That's the question. How long have you got? As long as you want. There's no okay. rush. I just, we've, we've hit the hour mark. So when you okay, so my go, record my record slow chat went for five hours with Ross Cameron. Okay. Okay, so just fair warning, that can happen, right? Okay. Um, okay, so here's where I'm at. Number one, I don't want to be in the city anymore because whatever level of disruption there is, it's going to be a lot worse in the city than it is out in more rural, smaller towns or actual rural areas. Yeah. Why? Because the food comes from the rural areas. And if there is a collapse in the supply chain, in the city, there's no food. In the country, there are farmers sitting there with food they can't get rid of, right? They're at the other end of that supply chain disruption. They're the ones who can't move the food. So from my perspective, I'm kind of done with city living for a while. Now, I'm staying in Victoria until the election. I want to vote against Daniel Andrews. I'm looking forward to the day when I just put that ballot into the box <laughs> and go, fuck you, Daniel Andrews. You can piss off. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that with, there's enough of uh, people who agree with me, well, that remains to be seen. But that's what I'll be doing. So I'm staying in Victoria until then. After that point in time, well, I've got a baby due in December. So we're going to stay for a couple of months after that, have the baby, you know, deal with that. 
and then we are leaving Victoria. That much is settled. Now, we think we know where we're going. We're making plans in that regard. I'm, I'm not going to say here, but we're pretty sure we know where we're going <clears throat> inside Australia, at least for the time being. However, I've always believed that I would like to raise my kids to be multilingual. I've always believed that I would like to raise my kids in Australia and somewhere else, right? Uh, and where I'm looking at the moment is Central America slash the Caribbean in that area. So we're going to move elsewhere in Australia to start with. And then at some point, I hope that we'll be in a position where I can take my family overseas for a couple of years. Now, your question about where would you go? Well, I would probably go to the island of Dominica for two years because after living in Dominica for two years continuously, you can get a Dominican passport. And a Dominican passport is a surprisingly powerful document. It allows you automatic um, residency, not citizenship, residency in an enormous number of other countries. See, Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, UK, Americans, we like to believe that our passports are the special ones, right? They're not. They're really not. Uh, there's actually a whole lot of sort of what we would call second-tier countries got together. And they said, well, those first-tier countries are being arrogant pricks and they won't give us, you know, residency. They won't give us, you know, the right to come and visit for more than 30 days at a time. They won't give us any of that. So why don't we all get together with each other and give each other reciprocal rights? And they did that. And there's 80 or 90 or so countries that all got on board this idea. So with a Dominican passport, I can show up to more countries than I can with an Australian passport and walk in and say, I would like to live here. And they say, yes, sir, welcome, come on in. And there's no time limit on that. The one rule is I can't take a local job. Now, given what they get paid, I wouldn't really be planning to take a local job. I'd be planning to earn my money online through consultancy or various other yeah. things anyway. So that's not a big deal as far as I'm concerned. So having an Australian passport and a Dominican passport suddenly opens up the world to me in a way that it's not open at the moment on, on just the Australian passport. But there's other options as well that are faster. So for example, cue suspense. <laughs> for example, anyone with an Australian passport can show up in Panama, get a tourist visa on entry, go to a bank and say to the bank, hey, I need to open an account because I'm doing the Friendly Nations Visa Program. And they go, yep, no problem. What hotel are you staying in? Blah, blah, blah. They open an account. The hotel is the address, blah, blah, blah. You deposit 5,000 US dollars into that account. And then you go back to the immigration department and you say, I have a local bank account with $5,000 and I'm here on a Friendly Nations um, passport, Australian passport. I would like residency, please. They confirm that you have that bank account and they tick a box and they go, yes, you are now a resident of Panama. You can stay here for as long as you want, as long as you don't take a local job. Do you have to listen to Van Halen while you're there or? <laughs> optional, optional. Okay. So the reality is none of us are actually stuck here if our income can be earned online. Mm. Now you could do that through, you know, you could be a video editor and if you've got good enough internet access, you can do that from anywhere in the world. You can be a, you can be a medical transcriptionist. You can be, there's a whole bunch of jobs that you can just sort of get into 
to earn your money online. You've got to do the hours. You've still got to do the work. You're still working a job, but you're earning it over the internet. And all of a sudden, there's an enormous amount of the world that opens up to you that isn't open right now. So my intention is, uh, so Duncanomics says, I can't homeschool my kids in Panama. Yes, you can. Um, you just don't tell them, right? Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm a little bit <laughs> Um, But you can homeschool your kids in Dominica without getting in trouble. So, you know, for me, you know, Mexico is a really interesting place. The Caribbean coast of Mexico, really interesting to me. Some Caribbean islands, right? This idea of the Caribbean island paradise. No, no, I like coffee. I'm an urban, I'm an urban dweller. I like cafes sure. and coffee and all the rest of it, right? Um, so Dominica for me would be would be probably not be the easiest place for me to live for two years because I'd have to give up some of the things that I really do like about Melbourne. We've got a really snobby coffee culture. I'm a, I'm an absolute coffee snob. I don't shy away from that. I'm proud of it, um, and I'm not going to get that in in a small Caribbean island. But there are so many options. Seven Eleven or Macca's coffee. I'm sorry. Why are we friends? <laughs> Dude, I'll just, I'll just, if the liquid's black and it makes me feel good, that's what just. Listen, just okay. So I'm going to be releasing a coffee subscription soon. Do yourself a favor yeah. and sign up to it. Yeah, it's okay. So let me, time's not an issue, right? You're happy to keep going? No, no, viewers, time's not an issue. Viewers can watch or not watch. Neither Randall or <laughs> I give a shit. Okay. So let's have a chat. If I cared about that. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> All right. So you know as well as I do that doing what you do sucks financially. Sure. Right? It's this is you you don't do what we do to get rich. However, you still have to pay bills. There is just this reality, right? We all want to be altruistic. We all want to be changing the world we all want to be like no it's not about the money but in the end when the landlord comes for his rent it's about the money yeah when you've got to put food on the table for your kids it's about whether or not you've got money okay that's just a reality so i've been a political commentator now actually for approaching 13 years now and for the first 11 years first 10 years i felt really self-righteous and really good about the fact that i didn't care about the money Right, I wasn't trying to build an audience. You see these influencers out there, all you know, spruiking this and selling that, and 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 you know, all around. and I felt so good about myself. Like, no, I'm doing this because I believe in it, and I'm passionate about it, and I'm changing the world, and I'm so much better than they are. Mm. And as a result, because I didn't have any money, oh, I've lost your audio. Tofa needs uh, money for a new microphone. All right. Have you got me? Yeah, we've got you. Okay. No, the, the computer decided my microphone had been unplugged. Um, so then along came COVID, right? And I hadn't invested in building a bigger audience. I hadn't. Yeah. You know what? OnlyFans paid me to get off their platform. It was one of the most lucrative <laughs> deals I've ever done. <laughs> Some of these comments are, are distracting. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Dawn. Sending us $5 sympathy money. Oh, nice. Sympathy money. Everyone loves sympathy money. I love um, it. Thank you. So, so I, I felt so good about the fact that I hadn't done, I hadn't sold out, right? Then along came COVID. And I had, I don't know, maybe 10,000 followers at the time. And I started to speak out March 31st 
I, I released my first video warning about the dangers of what was happening with the lockdowns and that, that, that it wasn't a proportionate response. And then I began to attend rallies, et cetera. And you know, the history is well known. And nobody cared because I was some random nobody YouTuber with a small following mm. and easily ignored. And that was a real slap in the face for me. I went, right. If I'd spent the last 10 years of my life actively, strategically building the size of my following, including getting the financial resources to do that, right? How much more of an impact could I have had? What if I was the Australian Joe Rogan, right? Yeah. After 10 years, I, you know, I pretend, I'm not saying I'm that good at what I do, right? But I, I could potentially have achieved something of, of, of a level of notoriety where when I came out against lockdowns, it might've actually made a ripple. But I didn't because I was so busy being self-righteous. I was so busy feeling better about how I was doing what I was doing and why I was better than everybody else that was monetizing it, blah, blah, blah. And I went, you fucking idiot, right? And I realized that my self-righteousness was, it was just pure ego. It was just this weird inverted ego, right? Where I was doing what made me feel good and feel superior rather than actually being really practical. And going, what is going to make me as effective as possible when it matters? So that was a slap in the face. And it took me a little while. And, you know, we were caught up in all the protests and everything else. And it was um, it was around about a year ago, around about now in 2021, that I realized I had to make a decision. Because I was a 39-year-old father of two. And I was approaching a decision point where, you know, this all this TOFA stuff was taking up most of my time. I was taking extraordinary risks, risking physical harm at protests every second weekend, risking arrest, risking all sorts of legal costs, etc. And I had absolutely no backing to fall back on. There was nothing there. Mm. And I had I, my audience had grown by then. I was, you know, up over 100,000 supporters, but but even so that was a drop in the ocean compared to what I needed to really make a difference, to really have an impact. And I went, okay, I've either got to stop doing this out of respect for my family, because my loyalty has to be to my family first and foremost, I've got to stop taking these risks. I've got to stop enduring these expenses. Being TOFA costs me between twenty dollars and $40,000 a year. All the different subscriptions I've got to have to different online services, you know, Adobe Creative Cloud and Dropbox and blah, 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 where I'm paying a lot of money every year. Um, you know, and then, you know, traveling around speaking, I didn't get paid to speak. I didn't get paid to go to the, the Friedman conference and speak a bunch of times at the conference. I, I went there on my own dime. It's costing me twenty dollars to $40,000 a year, and I'm not able to work as a result. Now, it was nice because I was looking after the kids. I was, I was a primary carer for the kids, so that had a silver lining to it. But out of loyalty to my family, I kind of realized I've either got to start paying the bills out of TOFA or I've got to stop, one mm. or the other. Right, I, I can't keep doing this. When I was in my late 20s, when I was 27, 28 and I started and I was driving a forklift for a living, making good money and I was single, well, fine, no problem. But my life has changed since then. And so a year ago, I embarked on a journey. That was where I actually developed the, the Topher Field logo for the first time. I've never had a logo. I've never had a brand. I've never tried to be a brand. I felt, I felt great about the fact that I wasn't that guy. Yeah. Right. And I finally went, you know what? I went, you know what? It's time to buy a new microphone. Yeah. No, every time I bump the table, the microphone decides it's been unplugged. Um, so 
so that was when I started to take things more seriously, did some new photo shoots, started working on some new formats, etc. And literally this week is the beginning of all of the rollout of the last year of work. So um, you would have seen last week, we, we dropped a teaser of what I've been doing with Rukshan. Yeah. Um, so those, there's more of those coming. Uh, there's a new YouTube. I want to talk coming. about that. Put a put a pin in that. Okay, continue. put a pin in that. Okay, the Rukshan thing. Uh, tomorrow night, I launch my new season of the Slow Chats. New look, new studio. Uh, the guests I've got lined up between now and the end of the year, phenomenal. Um, so much better than the guests you can get, Randy. Um, you know, <laughs> you're just you're just scraping the bottom of that barrel. I mean, that's why I'm, just, I'm here. Obviously, I'm just a grifter. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that one. I love that one. I, people say, oh, you're a grifter. I'm like, oh, dude, have you seen my bank account recently? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you know, I've, I've spent the last year sort of strategizing and planning for what's literally launching this week. And it's not like an all-in-one instant launch, but everything's just being rolled out, you know, one thing after another. The blog has been reactivated last week. Uh, the slow chats are kicking off this week. The Rookshan stuff's going to keep on, on going as of last week. The new YouTube format still probably a couple of weeks away. That's that's been a bigger project than what I, I had anticipated it was going to be. I've got the T-shirts, I've got the DVDs, I've got a, a subscribe star where people can support me, and I've got coffee coming. So the coffee was what started this whole segue. So he's 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 sort of the way I think, right? But when it comes to this sort of side of the financial side of what we do. Having supporters is nice and I appreciate it and it's wonderful and it makes a world of difference. But it doesn't sit well with me. I'm a capitalist. And ideally, if someone's giving me money, I want it to be in return for a product or a service directly for that money. Not a quasi-charitable, hey, I like what you do, have some money. Now, like I said, it, I appreciate it. I don't look down anymore. I don't look down on anyone that does that. I get it now in a way that I didn't before. Um, but ideally, I want to move through that phase and I want to get to the point where I'm actually making money in business and able to keep doing the TOEFA stuff because of the revenue from the business. So for the last two years, I've been in business in a business partnership with a guy in Sydney who's known as the Coffee Professor. And the business that we've had is actually called the Cigar Professor. I love my cigars. Uh, people often you know, have a go at me. Oh, you know, he's got all this money for cigars. No, no, no. I import and sell cigars. I, I own, I half own a cigar business, right? And that's what pays for my cigars. Uh, a lot of the time I'm smoking cigars as a, as a test for future products that we're going to be putting up for our subscribers and blah, blah, blah. So the guy that I started the cigar professor with, his, his actual profession is coffee. And he like literally to the point that he has at times been on the judging panel of the coffee championship, like the barista championships in Australia and that sort of stuff. Like this guy really, really knows his stuff. And so we've put together, we put our heads together and we've come up with a, a really wonderful coffee um, subscription model where you buy a pack and you get 32, uh, 32 deliberately. So you've got one spare, no matter which month of the year it is, there's, there's, you know, there's plenty there. Um, little sachets and the sachets are designed, I don't have any with me. Uh, the sachets are designed, they've got little cardboard wings that they actually sit over the side of whatever mug you've got and the the pouch sits in the middle with the coffee in it as really it's it's organic specialty grade coffee and all you have to do is pour hot water through it and it makes you this really lovely like a long black right it's not espresso type coffee it's it's yeah. it's a long black right yeah and it's really really good and um and it comes ready to go so it's already packaged in the pouches 
foil sealed with nitrogen so it stays fresh. It can sit in your cupboard for a month or two and it'll still be fresh. You just peel it open, drop it on there, pour some hot water through. So it doesn't matter where you are. You can be caravanning. You can be on an aeroplane. You can be whatever. It doesn't matter. You can have that same great coffee every single time. So we're we're still a couple of weeks away from officially announcing that we're launching it. Um, but my hope is to get enough subscribers through, uh, to the coffee to then actually be able to pay my bills. And that then becomes the thing that funds me to be able to keep on being tofu and keep on doing my thing. And by the way, another shameless plug, uh, Freedom Coffee, I like it. Um, we're going to have an affiliate program where people like yourself can get your subscribers to sign up and then you get 10% of the revenue. Nobody so. sign up yet. Nobody sign up. Believe it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you support Randall's work, wait until uh, we we have actually launched the affiliate program and uh, and then you can sign up through Randall and that way Randall is getting support and I'm getting support. The affiliate so, discount code is Grifter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's that's the long um, the long sort of way around answering the question of of you know how do you make what we do sustainable? How do you you know? I mean, you were at the conference, and one of the questions. So we we you and I were both um, on a panel to do with the new media, the alternative media, and one of the questions was you know from someone was asking you know. I, I'm worried that if I speak up and if I do what you guys are doing, that it's going to hurt my job, yeah. right? It's going to hurt my career, et cetera. And the answer is you're absolutely right, it will, right? And, and you and I live that every single day. So the flip side of the question is if you can't do what we do because of how it will impact you financially, then maybe the very least you could do is financially get behind the people that are doing what you can't, right? Yeah. Um, but but because I'm a capitalist, I want to do that through a business, not just through a, hey, give me money. As much as I appreciate my supporters, I've got some, I've got about 67 people that, that give me a little bit of money every single month. And I'm massively grateful. They've made a world of difference. But my hope is that over the next 12 months, thanks to the coffee subscription, I can get to the point where I can actually just shut that down and say, hey, guys, thank you so much. You've made the world of difference to me, but I actually, I've moved past that point now. Please take that money and go and support somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Just push them here. That's fine. I'll take them. <laughs> um, so is this coffee going to be branded so they know it's you or is it going to be more like? No. So we're specifically. Me, don't tell anyone because we might. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no. The association will be, will be acknowledged. Um, it's called Brew, B-R-E-W. Yeah. Uh, not, not as in like uh, a, a Kiwi person saying bro, hey, brew. not, hey, not brew. like brew. Uh, but B B R E W, um, and the the idea of it is those that know that it's associated with me will you know buy it and and support me in that way. But it could end up on on supermarket shelves. It could end up you know being sold just through sure. ads on the internet and without people necessarily having to know anything about that. And but the money still obviously then goes to helping me make what I do financially sustainable. Isn't that funny how? In today's day and age, we're like Hugo Boss. Well, you know why they, you know that they used to, they made the suits for the Nazis, so they're a bad yeah, yeah, company. Yeah. Isn't it funny how like now it's flipped over and it's like, oh, you don't want to buy that coffee. He likes freedom. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's just this funny, funny sort of thing. I, yeah, politics is everywhere. Ideologies has become built into everything, and and. This is the culture war. This is all sorts of different things, and I, I try not to get involved in the culture war as much as I can. To be honest, I, I just don't. I don't. I don't think it's all that it's cracked up to be. But the reality is, there are people who make 
all of their decisions, including which coffee they drink, based on their political ideology. Um, and if that's the reality, then I should probably get on the good side of that reality and say, hey, if you like what I'm on about, if you like what I've got to say, then buy this coffee because that supports me. And by the way, it's really good coffee. Now, to take back, uh, take you back to that video you released with Rukshan sure. uh, recently. There's only been one so far. Back right? to the pin. There's only been one so far. It was just a teaser, just a bit of foreplay. We can go back to coffee again, but it's just my memory is so bad because uh, no, all good. All good. last week my my 10-month-old has decided he would uh, take up breakdancing at 2 in the morning. Mm. Uh, so I haven't slept very well for a while. Very popular, very popular pastime for a 10-month-old. <sighs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's fun. Now, I've forgotten what I was going to say. Yeah, so that video, what you do really well, if I can compliment you just for one moment. Please do. It's, it's one simple message in one video. Uh, I have a sure. friend of mine who's who's quite um, a good, successful YouTuber in the political space, and they said sure. to me, before you upload any video, and I don't take this advice and I, 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 I don't know why, but they say before you upload any video to the internet, smash your head against the wall 10 times and then see if you understand the video. I.e., people on the internet, no one in this stream, because this is a long-form content, it's totally different, but people mm. who watch short videos on the internet, they can't hold two thoughts in their head at the one time. It has to be just one simple. And I really liked that about that video, and I'm hoping the and rest of the same. Can I just say, Randall, that explains so much about your face, that whole smash your face against the wall kind of It just clicked. It makes so much sense to me now. Well, I did say I don't take the advice, so I'm going to take Are that. Are you sure? That's or do you just not remember taking the advice? Beautiful. You should put me on the 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 coffee. I should be the logo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want people to actually buy it. Circular right? thing, and it says we should call this eight eleven coffee because it's one better than seven eleven. Um. <laughs> Sorry, my mind went. Um, wow, who was the comedian? Um, who did the inflationary language sketch. I'll think of his name at some point later on in this interview and I'll suddenly shout out a random person's name and you'll be like, what? I'll be like, that was the guy. That was the guy. Inflationary language sketch. Is it new oh, or brilliant. it's not Ryan? Um... No, no, no. He's, he's long dead now. He was, an, he was a Dutch guy. He was a pianist and he did, he did like full-on stage, uh, hour and a half long stage comedy routines. He was brilliant. Someone um, in the comments will know. Sure. Yeah, I'll think of his name. I'll think of his name at some point. Um, no, I don't even think I've seen anyone like that. No. I'm thinking of Bill Bailey as the only one who plays instruments no. and stuff. Nothing like no, that. No, no, this guy, this guy was 80 years old when I was 10. Victor, Victor Borg. Borg. Victor Borg. Dude, yes. Good on you, informed descent. Good on yes. you, Yes. Inflationary right. language was one of his skits. It's so good. Everything, every number that's built into all the words that we use goes up by one, and it's just hilarious. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Do you have any respect for modern day comedians? Not respect, very few. Wrong word. Who, who very would be few. some of your your favorites who are alive? Look, I'm not really the right guy to comment on this because I don't class myself as a comedian. Um, Me. You know, there's that there's that thing of um 
in order to be a good comedian, you have to have had a traumatic childhood. Um, and, and I just didn't, which I guess means that my yeah. parents have been trying to sabotage my career as a comedian since I was a very young boy. Um, they didn't do drugs. They didn't get divorced. They didn't beat the crap out of me. I just like, how am I supposed to be funny? It's just, it's impossible. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's the funny thing. Okay. And I think this is more of a reflection on me and how naive and stupid I used to be than anything else. I used to look at um, comedians like who's the UK twat with the long dreadlocks. Dreadlocks, um, gosh, um, you know he's very left wing. And I Russell used to Brand. Do, Russell Brand. I used to just roll my eyes like, oh, Ooh, come on. Now I find him really, really compelling and quite funny. He's turning. Well, Absolutely. is he turning or, or or did I? I'm not sure. Uh, I think he's turning. I'll tell you why. Because he always he brings it down to um, life, liberty, and property in lo a lot of his videos, even though he's sort of Marxist by well, he, socialist. He still brings it down. He was that. a Marxist, no question. He's he's filling in the blanks though, so it's interesting to watch. Um, yeah. But continue. You rolled your eyes, but now you like him. Yeah, I, I do. It's funny, or because he's he thinks about things. Well, to be honest, I still don't find him terribly funny, but I I do find <laughs> him I do find him much more interesting, much more compelling. What I would say is compelling. Um, and then yeah, you know, someone like Ricky Gervais. Okay, I enjoyed him in Stardust. I enjoyed some of his movie appearances. I enjoyed his brand of comedy to a certain degree. But in the last five years since kind of the woke left went too extreme for him. And so he started to speak out against them. I find him genuinely hilarious. I mean, when he hosted the golden globes, has there yeah. ever been a more delicious, you know, yeah. host for any of these sort of woke fests than, than him. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, when he was there making jokes about Jeffrey Epstein and, and, you know, Oh, you had to bring your own planes cause you couldn't pitch a ride with Jeffrey. <laughs> Um, you know, and the look of horror on the faces of these A-list celebrities. And then you've got Brendan Fraser. You know Brendan Fraser, right? Yeah. From The Mummy, okay? So he was he was the poster child of his day. Then he fell out of favor. Life, life kicked him in the balls. Like, life got really sucky for him. Mm. Um, but he was there that day for whatever. I'm not actually even sure why, but he was in the room that day. And there's images of him. And he is pointing at the other celebrities and he is laughing his head off. <laughs> I as they're all that. squirming in their seats because Ricky Gervais is saying what he's saying, and there's enough truth in it that they like it hurts. Yeah. Um, so and and there's even a couple of late show hosts, um, real talk with Bill Maher. Right? Right, yeah. Bill Maher, unrepentant, hardcore lefty, but the left have gone so far left that he can't even go with them anymore. Mm. And he's speaking out now and he's starting to say stuff. And and you can hear it in the audience reaction where <clears throat> they laugh, but they don't laugh until about three or four seconds after the punchline, after they've all kind of looked at each other and gone, are we allowed to laugh at that? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Are we, are we mm -hmm. laughing at this? You know, it's this really uncomfortable kind of, kind of laughter. Um, and I, I think that's, that's really interesting to me. I find it really, really fascinating. So coming back to the boring world of what I, what I talk about, but it, it does reflect on, on sort of what's happening with comedy at the moment. I, I talk a little bit at times about there's these two kind of cliches that we all know, right? But they're far more powerful than I think we give them credit for. One is the revolution always eats its own. 
Now, that's been true for all the time. The Russian Revolution, French Revolution, Cultural Revolution, the whole lot. The people that drive it often end up being its victims. Mm. Second cliche, every culture breeds its own counterculture. The conservatism of the 1940s and 50s bred the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is breeding the current generation. The, the, the young now are the least promiscuous. They're taking the fewest drugs. They're actually much more serious about just getting an education and finding a job and an occupation than previous generations have been for, for about the last three generations. Every culture breeds its own counterculture. Now, here's the power of this, in my personal opinion, is when the two of them happen at the same time, when you see the revolution eating its own and you see the rise of the counterculture that has been bred by the culture that that revolution created, when you see those two things happening at the same time, you know a massive cultural shift is coming. Things can move a lot in a short space of time when both of those are happening. Now, let's look at, for example, the recent sort of culture wars. When you look at what's happening with whether it's tra transgenderism and you know the sexualization of kids, etc., look at the previous heroes, Martina Navratilova, global superstar, the, 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 the lady of tennis, a, the, one of the first openly lesbian superstars on the global stage to come out and say, you know what, I'm a lesbian, deal with it. She is now a pariah because she didn't get on board transgenderism. Uh, her name is escaping me at the moment. This is the problem, Randall. We talk and we don't plan in advance and it just goes wherever it goes. And um, But there are other sort of heroes of first and second wave feminism that are now pariahs because they didn't get on board third wave feminism. They didn't get on board transgenderism. Right, and then now Helen Caldicott is one of them. There's another name that still escapes me. I'll, I'll get it soon. Um, you know that the 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 revolution is starting to eat its own. The people that drove the revolution in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are now being eaten by their revolution, and we're now seeing a counterculture. You know, take the U.S. because I think it's all a bit more. Yeah, J.K. Rowling, Islandish has said J.K. Rowling. It's another great example, right? Yeah. So. The you know, Caitlyn Jenner, the only transphobe trans person ever, <laughs> Mr. Macca666. You know, the revolution is eating its own, but in addition to that, the counterculture has been bred. We see, let's take the US for example. Now, whether you think it's good or bad is irrelevant. Think about the cultural narrative here. There are more young people than ever before since the, the Roe versus Wade decision who are anti abortion. Again, you can decide if that's good or bad. It's just a fact. There are more young people in the US right now that are celebrating the overturning of Roe versus Wade than actually wished that it had been continued. Fact. The counterculture is eating its own. Sorry, the revolution is eating its own and the counterculture has now bred its own, or the culture has now bred its own counterculture. When those two things happen at the same time, things can flip very, very fast. And I think that's where we're at at the moment and why we're seeing comedians that I used to find unpalatable becoming quite palatable to me is an indication, one, of my own growth and my own change, but also of it's, it's a leading indicator of this change that is, that is underway right now and will be very obvious in another 20 years, but it's happening as we speak. See, it sounds more like 
the disintegration of society rather than a flipping of the pendulum back into no, no? you don't think no. so why no. not okay go back to some of the u.s presidential elections 150 years ago and look at the rhetoric that mm. they were saying about each other it is mm. brutal it is brutal People talk about, oh, the fragmentation of society. We're all dog-eat-dog. We're all at each other's throats, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. That's just human nature. Hate to break it to you. We've always been like this. We've always been cunts, right? (laughs) It's just how we are. Um, And this this division is just how we are. It's always how it's been. It's the same thing as people bang on about, oh, mobile phones, everyone's just in their phone. No one talks to each other anymore. Have you seen a photograph of a train carriage from 100 years ago? Every single person, big newspaper, up in front of their eyes, breaking eye contact, unable to see anybody else in their own little bubble. Every single person, seat after seat. We romanticize how things used to be. But if you actually go back in history and read the contemporary data, the, the, the news articles, the commentary, the books, they were every bit as fractured and divided as what we are today. I, I have no doubt at all about that. Just a book recommendation I put on the screen. Don't even know what it is. Haven't read it. Can't comment. <laughs> we'll put a pin in that. Uh, what do you think of the argument that it's t- high time that the U.S. had a divorce, that the states should, that the union, it's a failed experiment, there's too much division, let's just, let's call it quits and... and okay. What, Two things. I'm going to start with the flippant one first and then get to the serious, boring one. The flippant one is if Texas or Florida left the US, I would move there in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would. The only the only thing stopping me from wanting to live in America right now is the federal government. The federal government sure. of the United yeah. States is the biggest human rights violator, the biggest violent gorilla that the world has ever seen. Take that out of the equation. I would happily live in Texas or Florida. Before before you give your your, um, slow, boring answer, I've been thinking about this recently uh, because, you know, the problem is the amount of state power is absolutely horrendous. And I was just thinking about because I've been on TikTok recently just showing my submission. Why would you do that to yourself? Showing my submission to the communists, and it's also a gateway drug to my OnlyFans account, but that's another story. Oh, well, that's Uh, fair. So in these sort of communist regimes or whatever, they're not producing anything, but they are leeching off the people until it inevitably collapses, right? So the amount of atrocities that they can actually commit is limited. Whereas in the US, it was traditionally low taxation, innovation, do what you want, go out, be an entrepreneur, and they just massed all of this wealth. And then a small percentage of tax on that wealth to a gigantic government can create a lot of damage mm-hmm. because there's so much of that wealth. And it's like yeah. yeah, the ability for them to create this evil is just because of the, the simple fact that taxation is this compulsory thing on wealthy citizens and now they've got endless streams. Well, taking the central bank out of the picture because that's a bit complex. But anyway... Well, Just saying because people say, oh, capitalism is it kills more people. And it's like, well, crony capitalism is big. I mean, the CIA. Cronyism, yeah. So uh, speaking of uh, geopolitics, as we were, um, 
So, I like the time I open my mouth, someone says completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're assuming that that was about you. Maybe it was about me. Uh, oh, they're, they're chatting case, amongst themselves. In which so case, completely. Anthony, you're completely wrong. Uh, no, no, you are. You are. Um, so, okay. The idea that the US has kind of reached its use-by date, it needs to dissolve into, into sort of separate countries, et cetera, is interesting because of the why behind it. The, the argument is the disagreements are too powerful, too intractable. They're never going to agree with each other. Therefore, they can't be in the same country together. One, I disagree with the premise. I think that of all of the systems that have ever existed, um, democracy for all of its many imperfections uh, is the best one at actually holding people together even when they disagree. Capitalism, actually, funnily enough, is the one thing more powerful than than democracy at holding people together even when they disagree. And if you if you don't understand that, you need to read the little booklet uh, called I Pencil or the updated version called No One Knows How to Make uh, a Pizza. Friedman or Hayek? I can't remember. I think Friedman has the video. Hayek has the essay, maybe. Oh, your mic has turned off <laughs> before you can correct me. Um, so I think Hayek wrote it, Friedman narrated it, I believe. Um, but it was recently, a modernized version was recently done by an American YouTube commentator by the name of Julie Borowski called No One Knows How to Make a Pizza. And essentially what it's talking about is the, the capitalist principle that through the desire to earn money, we all work together and we pool our skills and our abilities. And whilst no one person knows how to make a pizza, it's true, right? From growing the crops to making the machinery that harvests the crops to processing the grain into flour all the way through to then actually delivering the pizza, you know, the car, et cetera, all the things involved, the electricity that's needed, the power. No one knows how to do all of that. No one person. And yet we're all able to work together. Why? Because we all want money. We all have bills to pay, right? Uh, so this cooperation that comes. Anyway, that's a segue. What I, where I want to go with this is let's apply the same level of scrutiny to China. Because if any major global power is going to break up anytime soon, it's not going to be the US. It's going to be China. Now, if you want to know more about that, you've got to go back to an old slow chat of mine where I interviewed a, a good friend of mine, um, a friend of mine, he says, and then forgets his name, Paul Monk. Now, Paul used to be the lead analyst for the Australian, it wasn't ASIO, it was the Australian, the Defence Intelligence Organisation, the DIO. He was the lead analyst on China. So he was literally employed by our government to analyse the intelligence coming out of China and make recommendations to the government and decipher it and say, hey, this is what's going on in China. I did a slow chat with him a while ago. Paul Monk is his name. And he talks about the fact that China is not a country. China is an empire. It is actually a number of different countries that have their own languages, their own ethnicities, their own religions that have been forced together in a political union. So people go, oh, China, oh, that's not going to break up anytime soon. They're, they're united. Well, this is the funny thing. A, democ a, a democratic sort of freedom for its many imperfections in the US oriented country plays out its differences in public. We see the differences. We see the disagreements. We see the protests, right? Everyone arguing with each other. In a, a country that's run by a, a dictatorship like the Communist Chinese Party, you don't see the differences. 
It plays out behind closed doors. It plays out in private, in secret. It builds up. It's a pressure cooker. Xi Jinping, excuse me, Xi Jinping is doing a good job of holding the country together at the moment. But I put it to you that when Xi Jinping's reign ends, whether it's by natural causes or other, uh, China is going to face a very real challenge holding itself together. There's economic reasons for that. There's demographic reasons for that. There's cultural reasons for that. Um, it's it's very, very interesting. The people asking about whether the US should stay together should perhaps spend a little bit more time. If, if you want to sort of get the relevant geopolitics and the stuff that might actually impact us in our lifetime, you should probably be having a look at the U at, at, at China. That's very counter to what most people would be thinking about China. That's what I do. Thinking I counter, China I counter narratives. China is this gargantuan force, and they're going to take over Taiwan sooner rather than later, especially if Russia have their way, because that apparently will set a precedent for what China want to do. And you're saying no. You're saying China are on the brink of some sort of divorce. China, China would struggle to take over Taiwan by itself, if, if, even if Taiwan wasn't assisted by the U.S., People miscalculate this for the same reason they miscalculated Russia and Ukraine. They believe the bullshit. <laughs> they believe the numbers. They go, well, the Chinese have this many aircraft, that many troops, that many da 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 da, and Taiwan only have this much. Sure. Let's have a look at how that played out in Russia and Ukraine. Russia's got, what, five times the number of tanks, an extraordinary numerical advantage in so many different ways. But they can't bring every tank they have into that one theatre of operations. They can't bring every warship. They've got massive sea borders, land borders that they have to remain manned. In addition to that, both the Chinese and Russian military have massive, and I mean massive, corruption issues. People are actually paying to get promotions in the Russian military and in the Chinese. They're paying money, a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of US dollars to become a captain or to become a, you know, these aren't even high-ranking positions. Why? Why would why would it be worthwhile to pay that amount of money? Well, the answer is the amount of corruption. So what is normal in these militaries, both China and Russia have the same problem. What is normal in these militaries is they receive their funding based on a certain amount of vehicles, based on a certain amount of personnel, etc. So why don't, Russell, you know, let's say you're my second in command, because obviously I'd be higher ranked than you, obviously. That doesn't require any explanation. Uh, you're my second in command, and um, you and I want to make a bit of money on the side. So we've got 100 vehicles. We're a company strength armored, you know, armored, um, not company, we're a battalion strength armored division. Okay. Uh, we have a certain budget for maintenance. You know, what if instead of actually maintaining the vehicles, you just send an invoice for the maintenance that hasn't been done and I'll pay that invoice and then you give half the money to me? How about we do that, right? And that becomes very lucrative. And then slowly the vehicles start to break down. They don't work anymore. But we can just report that we've got 100. I mean, they're rusting, sitting in a paddock. They haven't moved for two years, but we've still technically got the vehicles right? So we'll just report that we're, we're 100 tanks, strength, all ready to go, operational. This is exactly what happened to Russia. This is why Putin thought that he was going to roll Ukraine in about five days, maybe seven, 
because he believed the bullshit that was written on a piece of paper. But that wasn't reflected in the reality of what was actually happening on the ground. The corruption of the Russian military is extraordinary and has been now laid bare for the world to see. Their inability to roll Ukraine is hugely embarrassing for them. And on paper should never have happened. But on paper and in reality are two very different things. China has exactly the same problem, perhaps worse. They are not the force that, they, that the world believes that they are. They would struggle to conquer Taiwan if Taiwan stood alone, much less if Taiwan actually had support. Let's say they go for Taiwan and other countries in the area go, you know what, if they're going for Taiwan, we're next. We're just going to get in now. What if that happened? It wouldn't even require the US. It would require Vietnam and Singapore, uh, yeah, etc. Those, the, the, those countries that are affected by the South China Sea the, 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 the nine-dash line claim that the, the, the China has to their territorial waters, if, if China attacked Taiwan, it won't even require the US. It'll just require those countries to go, nah, screw this, we're in. And China would be utterly, utterly humiliated. Uh, how can Putin be so dumb to let this happen? Is he just because he's in the... Here's my read on that. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand it using the same information sources that you have. So I'm not saying I'm definitely correct. All right. I will say that I've spent a considerable amount of time looking at different information sources, conflicting information sources. I haven't just sought out the ones that agreed with my own prejudices. I've, I've looked. This is my assessment of what's happened. I believe that Putin genuinely believes that he is, or that he ought to be, remembered by history as the person who united the Russian Empire, not the USSR. People make the mistake of thinking that Putin wants to re-establish re the USSR. He does not. <laughs> um, I thought I could slowly fade it in without, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. anyway. <laughs> uh, Putin wants to be the Tsar. He wants to be the head of the new Russian empire not the soviet empire the russian empire he has very specifically said that he wants to reunite the ruski mir now this is russia the belarusians belarus and the little russians ukraine these are the three countries that that make up the ruski mir in his mind and reuniting them will establish his place in history as the person who reestablished the Russian Empire, and became the first of a new generation of Russian Tsar. So that's why he wants to do it. Why did he do it when he did it? Why didn't he wait till he was ready? Because clearly they weren't. And I can talk to you about some of the specific tactical failures. I mean, it's just embarrassing. It's humiliating some of the stuff that happened. I saw a comment earlier, oh, Russia didn't send a proper force. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. They ran out they of petrol. They <laughs> ran out of petrol. Point. They literally thought they were going to roll the country in five to seven days. This was a proper invasion. Don't believe anyone that says otherwise. Um, and trust me, the humiliation for Putin has been so complete that if he had the resources to throw at it to roll them, he would have. So yeah. Putin believes that history should record him as the new Tsar, exactly as that comment said, this legacy. He's the new yeah. Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. The problem for him, and this is where I do get into speculative territory. I want to flag this. Speculation. Is he dying? 
I believe he is. You're spot on in my opinion. Now, no one knows, you know, you, you get a terminal diagnosis. You don't really know how long. You know, people get a three-month diagnosis. They live for four years. Like, it happens all the time. You don't really know. But if you look at, so Rusty Coin, can you bring up Rusty Coin's comment? Okay, look at military spending. If you think that's nearly his whole force, you're nuts. Did you hear what I just said? They have massive land borders. They have massive oceans that they have to maintain a military presence on. Of course, it's not his whole fucking force, you muppet. It's everything that he can afford to send in to an expeditionary war. Also, thank you, Rusty, uh, on my uh, Discord server. (laughs) (laughs) No offense, Rusty, but, you know, no. I I literally addressed that already. It's not his whole force. Of course it's not. He's not going to send his whole force. He can't. He has to maintain a state of readiness on all NATO borders, the Chinese border, the North Korean border, the whole lot. Japanese as well. Anyway, uh, moving on. Um, now that I've insulted yet another person for tonight. Um, so I believe, and if you look at images of Putin, he's been looking very puffy, very bloated. Not in a weight gain, I've been eating too much kind of weight, but in a steroids, being given steroids in order to combat a medical illness kind of a way. Mm. Uh, I've got friends that need steroids from time to time for genuine medical conditions. <laughs> okay. Um, and and it, it puffs them up, it bloats them, right? It's like a water retention into their skin. It just, you know, it has a certain appearance to it. Mm. And in my personal opinion, uh, I, I think that Putin has that look about him. Add to that the fact that he was completely paranoid during the COVID era. So when COVID was kind of at the height of its paranoia, he would have his government meetings and he would not be in the same room. So they've got this massive long table and he would sit at the head and all the people would sit down the sides, right? He wouldn't be in the same room as them anymore. He was in the same building, but he was, he had a camera looking at him and he was projected onto a screen right at the front of the room. He wouldn't enter the same room as the 40, 50, whatever it is people, right? Hmm. So I put the two together. He's looking bloated. He looks like he's on steroids. Right, which which is a legitimate treatment for a multitude of different medical conditions. Right, he looks to me like he's on steroids. He's clearly paranoid, and he's not a young man anymore. Then he makes this ill-timed invasion of Ukraine. Now let's think about this. You're an advisor to Vladimir Putin. Let's say you're one of his most senior and most trusted generals, and you suspect that there's an enormous amount of corruption in your ranks. You suspect that even though apparently you've got X many thousand tanks that are all combat ready with fully trained troops, you suspect that that might not be true. What are you going to tell Mr. Vladimir Putin? Mm -hmm. You're going to pass the report that says you've got X many thousand tanks onto his desk and say, yes, Mr. President, we are combat ready. The Russian, the might of the Russian army is ready to roll out. He then gets intelligence agencies and other things, all of which are absolutely supine. No one is going to tell him something that he doesn't want to hear. We all know about Novichok. We all know about political disappearances. We all know what happens to people who piss off Vladimir Putin. Hmm. Now, that might work for him in certain circles, but it works against him when it comes to getting people to tell him the truth. I think... He got a bad diagnosis 
And he in his head went, if I'm going to be remembered as the person who reunited the Russian empire, I've got one, maybe two, maybe three years to do it. And he went to his generals and he said, can we take Ukraine? And his general said, fuck yes, we can. And he said, let's do it. And then the emperor had no clothes. I uh, I completely disagree. Sure, go ahead. And I'll tell you why. I think that Putin was on steady ground until Tony Abbott said that he was going to shirt front him. And then it was downhill from there. He was just like, oh, no, not Tony Abbott. All right, you know what? Credit where credit is due, Randall. You finally said something funny. I, I you know what? Out. You know what? I got one. I, I, I repent. You are a comedian. You've said one thing funny in your life. Okay. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Look, um, what what do you think of Australian political leaders like our current Prime Minister Anthony Albanese going over to the Ukraine and meeting with the president, and then? Should Australia be doing this kind of stuff? Is it an obligation? What What's going on? What's your you might, opinion? You might see an episode of Topher and Rukshan on exactly that subject at oh. some point in the near future. Um, we haven't recorded that one yet, but I've written it. Um, yeah, okay. So him going over there, complete farce. What a joke, right? Everything that he announced, he could have announced from Australia. Let's, let's put aside whether or not we should be involved or not, blah, blah, blah. He's announcing $100 million worth of aid. He could have done that from his office in Canberra. Or if he really wants the photo opportunity, he could have done it from the Ukrainian embassy. He didn't have to go over there. It is, as someone just said, it's a photo op. He wants to be photographed with Volodymyr Zelensky. That's it. That's all it is. And in the, the skit with Rukshan, uh, he he then is... is um, shaping up to try and get a photo up with the um, the Prime Minister of Norway because she's hot. Um, but that's, that's a story for another time. Um, no, I think it was pure posturing. I think it was completely unnecessary. I think it's utterly absurd. And the fact that they pretend, they, the fact that they pretend that this is an important part of their business is just a joke. They know it's not true. We know it's not true, but we're all pretending like it's true. Like, oh, come on, give me a break. Now... Sorry? I was just going to say, I thought he went over there for the free AK-47s they give into citizens. <laughs> like, it was like John Howard took mine. No, no, so. no, no, no. Sorry. You're getting us mixed up. That's why I booked a ticket. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, now, look, should we be involved? This is a, this, That's a genuine question that I legitimately, I don't know. I legitimately don't know. When geopolitics gets to the level of should we be involved in a given war or not, this is where I have the most trouble when it comes to my own worldview and my own principles. Um, should we have been involved in Afghanistan? I would say no now, but when it started, I would have said yes. Now, I was a conservative back then. I've changed a lot since then, right? But nevertheless, these things look very different over time to what they do when you start. I would say we definitely want Ukraine to win. Does it automatically follow that we should send troops and spend blood and treasure trying to help Ukraine to win? 
in all sincerity and in all humi humility, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I have an answer to that question. I'm actually not sure. Fair enough. That's a good yeah. answer. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. What are the things that went unnoticed about just because we're on Anthony Albanese, because that's a clear segue from Putin to uh, Albanese. Well done. Well done. I mean, they both have puffy faces. Let's face it. Hey, uh, hey, Albanese's looking looking damn fine. I mean, that makeover that's that's working for him. That's working okay. for him. Oh, that makeover, yeah, before the election, and he put on that coat and took all those Woo. photos. Oh, he lost a heap of weight. He started posing with puppies. Pretty sure he did a barbecue what with Daniel that? Andrews. Like he just like he's been going all out. He looked like in that photo, especially, and I don't want to I don't want to just Body bag shame. him on appearance, but he looks like you know the movie Sin City, yeah. You know, the the pedo character, the yellow one. He just he looks like him. I'm just saying, not no saying that he is one. I'm just no saying on appearance. Now, uh, <laughs> Anthony Albanese very early when he got back from the Ukraine said, "You know what? It's high time we gave New Zealand citizens a vote in this country if they're living here." So that's what we're going to do. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they're very progressive and on my side of politics, but let's open the conversation. Here's what's funny. I think that might bite him in the ass because I don't think the think New Zealanders so. that are over here are as progressive as the ones that have stayed home. Think that's about it. True. The ones that are over here are working their asses off. They're the ones that are actually doing the jobs that Aussies don't want to do. They're picking our fruit. They're working in our minds. They, they are seriously hard workers. I've worked with a bunch of Maoris, especially, right, in, in blue-collar jobs. I used to be in warehousing logistics. We All the fruit and veg that went to Coles in Victoria, southern New South Wales, South Australia, and Tasmania used to go through the building that I worked in. We had some Maoris. They were some of the best workers we had. I, I'm not sure that it's going to work out for him quite the same way that he thinks it will. However, let me say this. We have a pathway to citizenship. If you want to vote here, you can become a citizen and then you get to vote here and you get all the rights of every other Australian citizen. I, I'm not clear. And, and, and when I say I'm not clear, I haven't taken the time to research because frankly, I don't really care. Um, so I don't know the details, but I'm not clear on what the problem is that he's solving here. Yeah. Well, he's just, he just wants to make it fair for those living here. They've, if they pay taxes here, they should get a vote. They should have a okay. say. That's the argument. Let me say something that is that is very unpopular uh, amongst my own supporters and, and viewership. But, you know, I love pissing people off, so I can't help myself. Um, we have an enormous number of people in this country who have worked their asses off for us. And we've treated very poorly. So this may surprise a lot of people, but for example, you head out towards um, Swan Hill and even further up north into Broken Hill, um, and you you get into country where there are plantations, and plantations are the wrong word, that invokes the deep south of the US. Uh, there are orchards, that's the word I'm looking for, large, you know, large orchards and, and plantations, and they need pickers. They need pick, people to pick their fruit. Yeah. And... They had temporary workers come over on temporary visas or students that stopped studying or various other people that made their way into the country and then overstayed their visa and worked their asses off picking fruit. 
And then they did that the following year. And then they did that the following year. Fast forward 15 and 20 years, and these people are still here. And there's a really interesting thing happening in our so-called racist country areas. Like if you talk to an inner city Greens voter, Broken Hill is going to be a racist part of the world. You know, Swan Hill, oh, yeah, full of like racist Aussie drongo, you know. Anyway, I was about to say a word that was probably going to get us banned. Um, <laughs> but but actually what's really interesting to me is out there, and I, and I know these people because I, I do work on the Murray-Darling Basin. Right, So I've traveled through these areas. I've talked to the farmers. I've talked to the people that run these orchards or own these orchards. I've talked to some of these workers who are, who are illegal immigrants, illegally overstaying their visas. And if you talk to the, the white Aussies out there or the Aboriginal, you know, traditional you know, landowners out there, they will tell you that they cannot survive without these illegal immigrants. There is no yeah. way that their orchard is getting picked without these immigrants they say they are the least troubled they are the most trustworthy people because they are very aware of the fact that if they come to the attention of the police it's a going to end really badly for them being on an illegal overstayed visa so they are literally people that you could they could walk into your corner store when you're not there and when you come in you go oh i didn't know you were here you don't have to look for what they've stolen they haven't stolen anything they haven't touched anything they're the most trustworthy people, the hardest workers that you can possibly get. And there is a movement now uh, out of Broken Hill, I believe it is, and I, sh I should do some more research on this and, and actually do a slow chat on this, um, that, that there is a movement now out of Broken Hill, I believe, to actually try and get these people citizenship because some of them have been here for 20 years. And we legitimately, genuinely would not have an agricultural industry in that part of the world without these people working their asses off. Mm. So on the one hand, I don't know what problem Albo is trying to solve with this whole citizenship for, for New Zealanders. On the other hand, let me use this as an opportunity to, to, to soapbox as a libertarian and say that the free movement of people to be able to go where there is work for them is really, really important. And we see people doing that illegally. But honestly, they've done us a favor. And we shouldn't be persecuting people who are actually out here doing the work that no Australian skinny-ass pussy white boy like me wants to do. Or even being able to uh, have an agreement with an employer to say, yes, I'll, I'll do this job for below yeah. the standard wage because I realize what it is. I mean, it's the minimum. Oh my goodness! I had this argument with someone on my Instagram about minimum wage because my boss paid me below minimum wage when I started as a videographer. Why? Because I'd not press record. I dropped yeah. the camera. Right. You're just right. an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. But like in my industry, and you would know, you start on nothing and then you can make a lot of money doing nothing. It's that's yeah. how it works. I, I haven't got to that second bit yet. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Um, I had a surreal conversation many, many years ago. I was a teenager. This is, this is 22, 23, 24 years ago with a, uh, a person who these days we would describe as a, um, classic SJW, right? Uh, and she was very, very upset with her boss 
because she was being paid at the time, I think it was somewhere under $30 an hour. Now, this is 22, 24 years ago. It's a lot of money, but anyway. She was on good money. (laughs) But she found out that her boss was charging her out at $80 an hour. So her boss, she was a software, she was a coder. Her boss is getting $80 an hour. She's only getting somewhere a bit under 30. I'm going to call it 25 bucks an hour. I don't know what it was. But at the time, and she was young as well, right? She was only in her early 20s. So he's an, he's an early 20s coder being paid what at the time was really good money. But she finds out that her boss is charging her out for three times more than what she's getting paid. And I had this conversation with, I knew her fairly well. I, I saw her on a semi-regular basis. And she had a whinge to me. And I said, but hang on you're sure that you're worth $80 an hour and your proof is that your boss charges you out at $80 an hour, open and shut case, therefore you're worth $80 an hour. Okay, let's accept that for a second. Why don't you just go and get $80 an hour? And she said, well, I can't. No one's going to pay an individual coder $80 an hour. They want like the business structure and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. So isn't it true that the only reason you're worth $80 an hour is because of the structure that your boss has plugged you into? She didn't talk to me a lot after that. <laughs> I wonder why. Weird. Weird. I, I still have it. It still bothers me to this day. I don't know why. Um, you know, and, and this reality that actually, you know, we, we're not worth the value that we bring to the company. We think we are. We're not. We're worth what we cost to replace. It's like a Rolls Royce sitting there, okay? And the handbrake cable snaps. And the handbrake cable says, well, this car is worth a million dollars. And without me, it's just going to roll. You can't park it. You can't leave it anywhere. It's going to get beaten up and scratched and whatever. So I must be worth a million dollars because this car doesn't work properly without me. Or a tank of petrol saying, I must be worth a million dollars because this car doesn't work at all without Mm. me. Mm. No, you're not worth the total value of the thing that you're a part of. You're worth what you cost to replace. And that's a harsh truth, but an important truth to, to, to come to terms with. Um, you know, so so I guess the question for you, Randall, is um, what do you think you're worth to replace? I'm Beyonce. I'm irreplaceable. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that, is that what you tell yourself? Does that help <laughs> you sleep at night? I told you I haven't been sleeping. <laughs> that's why. I get it now. That makes perfect sense. I will say, though, um, I was working on a documentary maybe two years. Oh, my goodness, two years ago. still hasn't been released. That's another story. Um, <laughs> and it was on uh, on uh, about the rise of OnlyFans and, and oh, yeah. the sex industry and prostitution, and we went out. Did you feature my channel? Well, I'm getting to that. Yeah, good. I'm getting to that. Yeah. We went out into the middle of nowhere, into the outback to interview these prostitutes who work on a farm. They have a, sure. they have a small farm out there. And they started talking about the Murray-Darling Basin. <laughs> and I go, you know what? Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Topher Field, does a lot of work on this. And they both go, we love Topher. <laughs> well, turns out I'm popular with prostitutes in the Murray-Darling Basin. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> 
uh, I was in the supermarket today and um, I saw someone do a double take on my shirt. So this is the one that says, don't, don't make me repeat myself. Oh, uh, yes. Um, and I saw her do a double take on the shirt and I just thought, oh, yeah, she's just... Because what happens is people read it and they go, well, that's a bit aggressive. Mm. Don't make me repeat myself. And then they finally yeah. get to the to the bottom and they go, oh, okay, right. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny. Um, yeah. And so I thought that's what was happening. And then we got to the checkouts and she was she was on the checkout next to me and, and you know, the sort of self-checkout thing. And uh, she pokes me in the chest with her finger, which is a bit weird. She goes, oh, I love you. Love your work. Big fan, <laughs> big fan. And then she walks up. I'm like, okay, that's weird, but okay. Yeah, that's something to get used to. Mm. You don't, you don't get used to it. In the, in the, in the weeks after I released Battleground Melbourne, it was four or five times a day. Mm. It was ridiculous. Just if I was out, I was, it was just ridiculous. Now it's settled down a bit more. It's sort of once every two days or, or, or so, but yeah, you, you never quite get used to it. It's always, always weird. What are the metrics? If you, do you know the metrics of how many people watched it in Melbourne versus other do you, Look, do you know I haven't that? really looked into that, to be honest, uh, mostly because not enough people have watched it full stop. Um, it got jumped on, like YouTube suppressed it. Um, there, there was a there was a campaign. There was a campaign of trolls that all flagged that is inappropriate. And that's why when you try and watch it, if you go onto the official version now and you try and watch it, you'll have to click through, I think it is three warnings. Yeah. Of, our community has said that this is content is inappropriate and you've got to go, yes, I want to watch it. And then you've got to go, yes, I want to watch it again. And then you've got to go, yes, I want to watch it a third time before it actually starts to play. So we got smashed and, you know, IMDB, our rating was like one point something until I got my, my followers to jump in and, and bring it back up again. Um, you know, we, there was a campaign to smash Battleground Melbourne. And uh, it was it was in some ways successful. Now I've I've re re-strategized. Um that's why I shifted my focus to the uh film festival strategy and we're we're doing a, a, a we're doing really well in film festivals. We're doing um we're doing um we we've got seven awards now in film festivals around the world. Anthony says is it on YouTube? Go to battlegroundmelbourne.com battlegroundmelbourne.com. It's embedded in the homepage at battlegroundmelbourne.com. You can watch it for free. You will have to click through a bunch of warnings and you will have to be logged into YouTube otherwise because it's age-restricted and all sorts of other crap. What we're doing is we're actually working on... Uh, so the Deactivist just put up a link. Deactivist, is that the official one or is that the early release? Because the early early release, the sound mix wasn't right. The music uh, was It says go watch the 4K version. Yeah, go watch the 4K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, okay. so if you go to the link that the activist put up and then you click on the link in the description of that video, it will take you to the one that's in 4K and it's got the audio mix is correct. The audio mix on the first release wasn't right. I'm the director, so it's my fault. Uh, there's lots of stuff going on, but whatever. Um, no excuses. That was on me. The audio mix wasn't right. Um, so, so, yeah, just click through to the official one. Um, the yeah, so we've been hit by all sorts of campaigns to try and shut us down. So we shifted our focus to a, a film festival approach to try and rebuild the credibility of the documentary and overcome the, the the bad review campaigns and things that we that we were on the receiving end of. That's been working. We just yesterday got our seventh film festival award, and we're in two nice. more film festivals this coming weekend. So we should hopefully pick up another one or two there. So we're we're going to be sitting on maybe eight, maybe nine, maybe ten different awards which these are international awards from impartial judges. 
right? It says something about about what um, what we've achieved and, and the quality of the documentary. So we've only had about a bit over a half million views. We had a half million views on the on the early release, and we've only had like bugger all views on the official release because the official release was just squashed. They they were ready for it and they just squashed it. So what we're working on now. Uh, I've had someone very generously offer to put some money behind an ad campaign to try and get more people to watch it before the election. So we're rejigging the um, we're rejigging the battlegroundmelbourne.com website so that you don't have to click your way through all the warnings. It'll either be a Rumble link or it might be a Vimeo link. We're just working on what's going to work better um, so that we can we can pay for advertising to bring people to the Battleground Melbourne website in Victoria. We're just going to be putting those ads out to people in Victoria. They come to the Battleground Melbourne website and there it is, right there in front of them, ready for them just to click play and it just starts uh, to try and get more people to, uh, to 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 watch it. So, yeah, we've been on the receipt. Like, you know, I wanted to do the cinema tour, right? I wanted to try and get it into cinemas. And again, because there are people that won't watch a, a link. You send them a link and say, hey, watch this. This is amazing. They're like, oh, it's just a fucking YouTube video, whatever. You know, you, you tell them, you bring them a DVD. They're still not necessarily going to watch it. But if it's in cinemas... And you say, hey, listen, I'm going to watch this in cinemas. Come along with me. They, they're more likely to go, oh, okay, that must be good then. Like it must be, there must be something, right? It's in the cinema. So we're, we're doing this cinema tour. And um, I assumed when I started organizing that or when I had my team start organizing that, I assumed that we wouldn't get into any of the big cinema chains, you know, Village and Hoyts and all that. They weren't going to touch us. But maybe the independent cinemas would. We reached out to all of them and we just started getting knocked back after knock back after knock back. None of them wanted to touch us. What we realized was a lot of these independent cinemas depend on like community grants and money from the government. That's how they survive. So they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Now, ironically, and much to my surprise, village cinemas came to the party. So we're actually kicking off a cinema tour on the 23rd of August. It's not officially announced yet, but it should be announced in the next couple of days. We're kicking off a cinema tour on the 23rd of August. 23rd of August at Rivoli Theatre, Rivoli Cinema in um, Camberwell is going to be the premiere. And we're going to have a bunch of the people that are in the documentary are going to be there on that day. And then we're going around to about 14 other locations around Melbourne and Victoria. right? Going to, And I'll be there. I'll be just going to cinema after cinema after cinema. I would if someone has a magic bullet to get onto Rogan, please, please, please tell me. I wonder me what if it needs. needs like a um a mass tweet campaign. Just everyone tweeting. I don't know, maybe. I mean, people do that to him all the time though. That's the thing. With someone like Rogan, when he's that famous, he's got a bajillion people coming at him every single day. Mm. He's not even looking at his own Twitter. He's got people that look at his Twitter. Mm. Um, so anyway, look, I'm, I'm working on that. It's, it's, I'm speaking at the CPAC conference in Sydney later this year and, and, uh, Zuby, the American rapper is going to be there. He knows Joe Rogan. I'm going to, I'm trying to work all the channels and, and work all that stuff. So all of that's happening, but the, 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 the matter of the moment is the cinema tour. So village actually came to the party and we're now booking in cinemas with village all around Melbourne and all around Victoria. Uh, and I'll be there in person at every single showing. And uh, and we're going to show the movie with the intention that people buy tickets and buy one for a mate and drag that mate along whether they want to or not. Get them in that room. Get them to watch mm. that movie because it'll change their life and it'll change how they vote in November. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was on a show, a radio show in the U.S., 
and they forgot Daniel Andrews' name and they go, oh, I forgot the Premier's name. He looks like Igor from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, how is that not a meme? That's, <laughs> that's, that's so exactly. true. I remember yeah. that movie. That's so true. Yeah, I was like, that's exactly who it is. And that makes me feel better. I, I mean, we talked about comedians earlier and I have no other recourse. I really don't. I yeah. don't. I don't have anything else other than to poke fun or else I'll just wither and die of depression. Correct. Of course I have my faith, but like on a, on sure. more of a, like a practical every, every day sort of how do you deal with the realities of your situation yeah. um, and help others through it. That's, that's all I've got. Oh, my camera just died. What whiskey am I drinking? Oban 14. I've got a good one today. This, if you haven't had it and you like your whiskeys, this is a great whiskey so good i drink my whiskey neat no ice no water no nothing uh just the way that the blender intended or the um, the distiller intended i should say blender i'm used to cigars um you know what um randall i think this is the greatest contribution you've made to our show all night actually i'm, I'm really appreciating this oh, wow i'm just showing uh, solidarity for black lives matter no look and i and i appreciate it and and I'm showing solidarity for red faces matter. I've got this real rosacea issue that, you know, I've got uh, crooked teeth, red skin, middle-aged, overweight, fucking ugly. Why don't, why you, don't what? you look, tell, tell us, um, this will be the final question. Do I look good in this frame? No. Um, <laughs> you won Libertarian of the Year, well-deserved. Um, for people who are coming from different places in their political journey i guess what would you call hey look at this i'm still holding it hey hi hi i liked it better the way it was it's more it's more like interactive tell us what a libertarian is and why that's you and then i'm gonna go sure. help my wife with the child that's but but first first can we can we just acknowledge this comment from tomorrow six or tomorrow vi i'm not quite sure what he's going for Hello, darkness, my old friend. Tofa's come to talk to you again. <laughs> Can we just acknowledge the brilliance of that comment? Um, one, one of the supporters of the show. Thank you, tomorrow. Yeah, nice. And I'll thank um, you today. So, okay, what is a libertarian? Essentially, a libertarian says, I believe in you. I think that you can actually make better decisions for yourself than I can. And that if you don't, and if you make terrible decisions, that it's better that I allow you to do that and to learn from the experience. And even if you don't learn for others to watch you and go, Hmm, that's interesting. I will learn from your experience. than it is for me to try and save you from yourself. Libertarianism is a huge supporter of charity, of community, of supporting each other but not of forcing other people to live in a way that we would dictate or, the, or a way that we would say is better. It stands in stark contrast to something like socialism or something like communism that assumes that there are a privileged few who can make better decisions than the rest. And that if those few, uh, the Politburo, then go ahead and control everything, that somehow we will achieve some level of utopia. I may not agree with the decisions that you make. I may not choose to make the same decisions that you make. 
But I think that the world is a better place if you're allowed to make your decisions rather than some central power making everyone's decisions for them. That is basically libertarianism in a nutshell. I love it. Congratulations. Well-deserved. Thank you. Hopefully we can have a, an awesome turnout to the cinemas. Hopefully we can get some people retweeting and putting it in front of uh, these uh, uh, you know, influencers' faces. Look, if I could get on Dark Horse or even Shapiro, not that I'm necessarily a massive fan of a lot of what he's on about, or Joe Rogan would be the Holy Grail. Oh, Joe Rogan! Um, <laughs> then, then that would be amazing. But look, I can't control whether that happens or not. All I can control is just plugging away. And, you know, thanks to the people that financially supported the documentary and made it possible for me to make it, we've got a phenomenal documentary. And I, I say that without ego because I don't, I don't feel like it was my documentary. I, I had an amazing team of people. And what they created alongside me is genuinely an amazing documentary and an amazing piece of history. And thanks to that, I have the opportunity to now share that with the world and uh, that's all I'm focused on. Between now and November, the only thing I care about is uh, to 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 get as many Victorians as possible to watch it. That's it. That's my life between now and November the 26th. So we'll see whether it makes a difference. I don't know if it will or not, but I'm not going to leave anything on, on the table. I'm going to do everything that I can, leave nothing in the tank uh, and and try to use this documentary to make a difference. Well, thank you for all the work you do. Thank you for spending the time to chat with us plebs. It's been fun, man. And uh, we should catch up soon and drink some coffee. Yeah. Well, some coffee followed by some whiskey, of course. Yeah. 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 Well, I was trying to give you a plug, but if you don't want to take the opportunity, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> some coffee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Coffee. Yeah. hundred percent. Oh, yeah. You, that's you what that I brew? do. Coffee. Brew. B-R-E-W. Yeah, that, that coffee. Hey, Brew, give us a vote, Brew. Hey, Brew. Coffee. Hey, Brew. Yeah, Brew. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining in the chat, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday for uh, We Are With uh, Gene Tunney talking about the housing crisis. Uh, so if you're worried about inflation and housing like you should be, I want you to worry and get anxiety. Uh, tune in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>